Alienation and disillusionment from society at large is nothing new. Many modern religious and other communities today were themselves born out of frustration historically with the way things were proceeding in the mainstream. What sets them apart, however, is the fact that they are still around. The track record for most intentional communities is little better than startups, failing more than 90% of the time. And the ones that succeed are often marked by how little they have changed fundamentally in order to survive, yet are just different enough to present an attractive alternative. It turns out civilization is an incredibly difficult social technology that is not easy to recreate from scratch, and the most successful alternatives to the mainstream take this lesson seriously and have rules, systems for managing resources, ways of benefiting from the outside world, and means for excluding those that seek to destroy them. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we are joined by two very special guests from our uh, friends in arms over at Rebel Yell. Uh, please say hello, Dark Enlightenment and Masonius Rufus. Hey, thanks for having us. Glad to be back, gentlemen. And uh, my co-hosts uh, are uh, Hans and Nick tonight. Hi, everyone. How's it going? Hey, how's I think we're all pretty good. Uh, so today's topic is intentional communities versus colonies. What does that even mean? And what do we do in our really screwed up society as it stands? Um, but that's the idea. We're going to basically go through historical examples of people leaving their home communities and societies, uh, trying to do it better, often failing, and then we're going to try to figure out why it failed, why some succeeded better than others, and what we can learn from it. Uh, before we jump into the details, I did want to give one thank you. We got a very generous donation on Bitcoin from the Bitcoin wallet, starting with the characters 1CB4. Thank you very much. Um, but with that... I wanted to start us off with an example of just the absurdity of what we all experience living in the United States. If you do remember uh, when Obama came into office, uh, one of his main uh, policy initiatives was to reform the healthcare system of the United States. Reform, he did, but reform for the better is, is highly debatable. Uh, because not only did the costs go up for most people who already had insurance, uh, but the effectiveness, from what I can tell, has not changed whatsoever. And just to give you a, a quick summary of, of how expensive our healthcare system is in the United States, uh, considered in many circles the quote unquote most technologically advanced society on earth, it costs more than uh, $10,000 per person uh, for 
what we receive in healthcare in the United States, which is more than any other country. It's close to 20% of our GDP. And the Amish who live within the confines of the United States, who eschew technology, at least the modern sort, have very similar mortality rates as Americans. And they don't spend any of that money on whatever we do. Uh, and they don't also consume a lot of the stuff that we consume uh, in our society to get us as sick as we get. So that is probably the most clear-cut case for why living in America may not be good for your health uh, and why other people decide it, uh, it just isn't for them. Uh, so with that, um, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. You know, one, one of the most interesting things about Obamacare was not just the fact that it raised premiums in some cases by three, four hundred percent in rural communities. It's almost like it was designed to do that. But it effectively ended the small town physician. The small town um, you know, lone physician or pediatrician uh, basically does not exist anymore. So the healthcare system in the United States was transformed uh, as I think the intention was into a very strange European style system where it's a collection of specialists at very complex hospital systems that are part of a larger financial network that generate huge profits for a very small group of people. Um, you can kind of call this part of the general Obamanomics program, which was to get everyone into metro areas. And one of the best ways to do that was to completely destroy healthcare coverage and completely ruin people's chances of having effective, normal healthcare um, and solving normal problems without having to be in a metro area and not having to be connected to a larger hospital network. And, you know, there's, I can link a few articles. There's a couple articles from both Random Sea Analysis and Spotted Toad, both very, very good, um, more economic minded bloggers. And they go into uh, what is often referred to as sort of the bureaucracy problem or the middleman problem in U.S. healthcare. Ironically, it's used by uh, people in favor of socialized medicine. You know, this is the reason why you should have socialized medicine to remove the bureaucracy. Well, if you look at any European style system, it is rife with bureaucracy. It's rife. And most European style systems are actually uh, collapsing currently. I think I believe last that the uh, to make significant cuts to their healthcare system once regarded as one of the best in the world, um, and I imagine that in the next decade, uh, several of the Scandinavian countries will have to transform their healthcare systems rapidly. Um, their population won't support it. Uh, the newcomers don't really uh, lead to a better healthcare system. The demographics don't support a good healthcare system. So many of these countries that have been held up as standards uh, will probably start to see. Uh, ironically, an Americanization of their healthcare systems, only you know, just to stay afloat, just to prevent a total catastrophe, the way that you have in um, the British, the British NH NHS, which is uh, notorious for having way too much bureaucracy, um, way too way too little service offerings, and is just a complex network of specialists that do individual tasks and can't deliver general care. Oh. Well, this is a huge topic, guys. You know, it all started with wage and price controls, and so companies started adding, uh, you know, these uh, you know these health packages as a way to get better workers. And then Congress turned around and removed the wage and price controls, but then they made it mandatory that you get it through your employer. 
And so we have a triangle in the United States, and that's why it's not a market. You have a, a patient, healthcare provider, and uh, you know a health care payer, and each uh, angle of the triangle is trying to screw the others over. So you get like this cyclone of uh, gouging, price gouging. And um, where, whereas in a market, you have a consumer and producer negotiating the price. And, um, you know, they, the, the old way before we had make, you know, mega corporations providing us health insurance, the old way was to use cooperatives, mutual aid. And um, what they did was the doctors got together and they made that basically illegal, you know, where a bunch of poor people were getting together and sending a kid to medical school so that he could uh, take care of, you know, 300 people in a community or something for really cheap. And uh, back in right after World War One, they, um, you know, they made all these laws that said, you know, you can't do that. And uh, but there are uh, there are ways around this. I mean, th there were churches that said, you know, we we have to provide charity as per our religion. And so there's five health share ministries that that give you like a way out of this game. And, you know, speaking of Obamacare, it was the insurance companies that wrote it. So they made a lot more money off of it. I don't know why people, well, I know why, but, you know, they think they're getting one over on Mr. Moneybags, but the insurance companies have made a killing off of it. So, you know, who's, you know, who's getting fleeced? Is it Mr. Moneybags or is it the uh, patients? You know, is well, it the, yeah. Well, one of the things that, that you need to understand, I mean, obviously, the infant mortality rate was horrendous prior to the advent of modern medicine. But that three score and 10 that comes from the Bible is, is pretty standard. Once people um, made it out of like past age five or something, pretty much everybody lived to 70. And people were in good health. And, uh, you know, Weston A. Price did all, these, uh, did all this research back in the early 20th century about uh, eighth of people that were in um, you know so-called primitive societies and what they ate and um, you know the Amish they work really hard all day long and they stay in good shape and their men are 65 years old and in, you know able to bend horseshoes with their hands and that kind of thing and you know this um, in the 21st century the way to have healthcare is not you know is your healthcare is going to be not needing it going to be eating right and getting exercise and not not going to the doctor because if you have, uh, you know, and you've done a show with uh, Johnny Monoxide about the metabolic theory of cancer, Rufus, it was really good. Um, you know, what all this corn syrup and um, God knows what else, um, it, it kills you. And of course, the, the, the you know, the, the neoliberal and neocon program is to get everyone into cities uh, for banks and financial institutions to um, capture and write the laws via bribing Congress and with you know, campaign contributions and cushy jobs after they leave wall, after they leave office and that sort of thing. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the rich men that kill markets. You know, it's, it's not the poor get together and, and overthrow the market. The rich hate co competition. They hate markets. And, uh, you know, if you call them crony capitalists or Rainier capitalists, whatever you want to call them, you know, they're not engaged in. Well, I, to Rufus's point, right? You're, you're never going to get, you know, kind of genuine reform out of this government. 
it's just not going to happen. It, it, if if you had any hope of that, CPAC 2019 should have like shot that hope in the head, drug it up. You know, <laughs> I was just hanging it, out, you know, but uh, yeah, you know, buried it in the desert. Like our establishment, um, is more comfortable. You know, ostensible conservatives are more comfortable with literal communists, Antifa communists, reporting at their event than they are letting even in like a milk toast, somebody milk toast like Nick Fuente. And, let and, alone and, some- and that that is that is just the most recent example. But to sort of prove this point, um, and I'll put a link to this. There was a study uh, done at Princeton, I believe, whereby they showed uh, that there was just a massive sort of uh, data set that these academics uh, worked with looking at public opinion of you know the public normal people versus the the donor class which is a term I've sort of heard more recently about basically the elite Uh, and the public opinion affected uh, the public policy um, zero percent of the time like there was like almost no correlation at all between yeah didn't even matter at all yeah, and, and what and what the elites problem. wanted though happened. So unless you're one of them, don't expect the government to solve your problems. Right. Well, and you know, to to kind of kind of talk about what you know, they're all all the elite are buying, you know, islands in the South Pacific or building bunkers in New Zealand or putting um you know putting uh, retreats up at at you know remote islands in um in the Puget Sound area. That's all stuff I've heard of them doing. Um, they, whether you want to call it bankers or the neoliberal globalists or, um, put echoes around something or whatever, obviously they know things are falling apart. They can read the same stuff that we can, and they usually read it 10 to 15 years earlier than we do. Yeah. And and Um, you mentioned, uh, sort of Vancouver area, uh, British Columbia. Um, there was a guy from Facebook who said a couple years ago that basically like the people in Silicon Valley, are for the most part uh, sort of oblivious to how much of a bubble they live in. And he basically was sort of seeing outside that and decided to locate there because he just doesn't see the stability of the system uh, going forward. And he sees it very unequal. And, you know, he basically just left the company and bought this piece of uh, piece of land. It may have been an island to kind of ride out the storm. Now, unless you, again, you have the money to do that, uh, what the show is hopefully going to be about is how do you address this yourself? Right. Well, and and you address it yourself the way that Rufus uh, kind of alluded to earlier. That's mutual aid. That's that uh, America. You know, Tocqueville talked about it, but America is the all-time world champion on you know mutual aid associations. There used to be hundreds of them all across the all across the country. Men used to be involved in two or three of them. You know, you'd be in a member of the Moose Lodge, and a member of the Masons, a member of the Oddfellows, and a member of this, and a member of that. And, um, you know, that's that's one of the ways that our society has been diminished, and regular people's prospects have been diminished, is that the social trust required to do things like be a member in good standing of a, a fraternal organization just doesn't exist anymore. Because what, what do you have to be fraternal about, right? Fraternities, brothers, right? Fraternity. Uh, well, if you're all of the same ethnic stock, right, and you're all of this, roughly the same religion, and you all live in the same place, you've got a lot to be fraternal about. But in, you know, uh, in, say, Chicago, 
if you're one of the poor, dumb SOBs who works in the ag, you know, financial financial ag industry in Chicago, what do you have to be fraternal about with the blacks and the Mexicans and the Jews and everyone else? If you're just like a wasp American, what what like every one of these people views you as a like a, a something to be leached off of? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a funny story about uh, the agricultural financial class in Chicago. Uh, that may sound very bizarre to most people, but uh, basically, Chicago is, uh, for historical reasons and logistical reasons as well, uh, the center of commodities trading in the United States. Uh, and they do that because traditionally, that's where the sort of railroads met uh, in the middle, and a lot of the, uh, the farm and produce. The Right. Well, uh, it, was a, it was the crossroads of railroads and the uh, water transit network. Trailer. Right. It, it's just logistically a fantastic place to do it. And the financial uh, futures industry and options industry built up around that uh, originally uh, for hedging against uh, commodity price fluctuations, which can uh, ruin a farmer if they're not uh, careful because there's these sort of long-term plans that they have to get into on planting and if the prices suddenly drop and they've borrowed money to plant, uh, their debt obligations don't drop and they're basically screwed. And so what they do is they hedge, which is basically buying uh, futures contracts, which offset that risk. But anyway, we're not really uh, going into the, that level of detail. But the story was I was there um, visiting. Um, I hadn't really been there before and I was... Uh, hanging out with some people uh, and I was asking them because uh, they were uh, commodities traders. They worked at the, uh, one of them. It was, I think at the Chicago board of trade. And I was asking one of these guys, you know, Hey, uh, what's, what's, um, what's it like around here? I'm new to Chicago. And he's like, Oh yeah. You know, tomorrow you come on down, you know, I've got the trading jacket. I'll show you around. Uh, but uh, don't, don't go that way. I'm like, what's that way? Well, that's the South side. Uh, if you go down there, we're going to have to send a tank in to get you. Uh, and I'm like, oh, all right. I went anyway. But um, he was right. Uh, very, very different place. Uh, and this is where I think Kanye West is from and where the murder capital of the United States. Uh, between there, Detroit and Baltimore sort of fluctuates. Uh, so well, the south side is very different. Common, right? And so, right, so our, uh, our elite is ruthless about being honest about this sort of thing to themselves. Right, they don't send their kids to public schools. They don't um, live in places like they'll, you know, take a helicopter to work, um, rather than like mix among the hoi polloi in the street, right? So or or armored limousines or what have you, and and effectively, you know, they leave their home office in the morning, get in their mobile office in their limousine that's you know armored and stuff, and then they uh they you know work for the ninety minutes or so or whatever it takes. Yeah, I've I've told this story before too, but I was uh, I was in India and there was a helicopter overhead, and I asked somebody, uh, you know, what is that? Because you don't see too many helicopters in a place like that. And he said, Oh yeah, that's um, Mukesh Ambani going to work. He's the I think he's the richest man in India, uh, if I'm not mistaken, or one of the uh, one of the billionaires there. Uh, and that's how they get around because the roads are are completely fucked up for lack of a more eloquent term um and they're just flooded with people and it's really funny actually in india because the um they have these bumper stickers uh 
that say uh, horn okay please and boy do they love using the horn and they don't they don't really follow the lines either they're kind of just like trying to make their way um to <laughs> to the whatever opening spot they can get but it's basically a, a giant traffic jam so the infrastructure is totally hosed and the the people who have benefited the most from globalization they're sort of like our elite but you know even more so arguably um are are just completely removed from this garbage and it's sort of like brazil you know has this stuff too yeah. they'll they'll have these yeah. walls cool. uh you know between the favelas and where the high rises of the wealthy will live uh, and they're just they're well, different worlds and, and if if the wealthy of brazil right did try and drive through rio they'd, they'd be attacked and ransomed and possibly sent in body bags and, and um you know the this is all right. I don't know what kind of goes through our elites' minds. I think that they know what we know, um, but they, but to honestly admit it would to be like give up oh, their power that, or something. Yeah, exactly. That that would not help them because then all you know the next question is well, if you acknowledge this, then what are you going to do about it? And uh, it just gives people license to attack them. Let me jump in with something. Have you guys heard of the uh, the Uber Elevate program? No, no, you haven't. So we're talking about you know, how the elite is going to get around a lot of the uh, the misscaled complexity that they've created. Um, I remember seeing this last year, and I immediately realized that there was a deep level of cynicism at work here. First of all, Uber is not a public company, and it was certainly not when it started this project. Uber is basically a company that survives off of the investment of your grandparents' pension funds. I know that sounds weird, but that's the entire venture capital funding of Uber. Uh, Uber is probably the most cynical project of the elites that I've seen in quite a long time. Um, and this Uber Elevate program that they've created, uh, I'll just read a little description. The Uber Elevate team is working toward transforming the world through aerial ride-sharing at scale. Imagine soaring above congested ground traffic with Uber Air. This future is closer than you think. Uber is developing shared air transportation, planned for 2023, between suburbs and cities, and ultimately within cities. We're working with our Elevate Network partners to launch fleets of small, electric, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft in Dallas, Los Angeles, and a to-be-announced international market. So they chose the two worst cities in America. For that's that's debatable. <laughs> oh, for Dallas, traffic. okay. Dallas, Los Angeles is the worst. Yeah, exactly. Bar yeah. none. Dallas, Dallas has a lot, but they're so big and spread out that you can kind yeah. of manage it. Um, uh, and it's curious that they didn't say, you know, uh, well, they didn't say DC, even though the Beltway has terrible traffic. That's because there's already so many helicopters flying around DC, and it's so easy to get one. Or kind of an elite there. Mm -hmm. well, um, Uber is an interesting Uber. Just the car service is an interesting business model all by itself, right? Steve yeah. Saylor has talked about this before, but basically they're paying you to wreck your car. Well, they're right. they're paying you to like bankrupt yourself over time. All right, well, so, I'll, but, I'll cut but, it out. But, but that right, and then and of course, um, um, what is it? Uh, Airbnb, right? You know, like similar things. Like this is just like boarding house stuff from the early 20th century again, <laughs> except 
in the early 20th century, you could be like, I have a boarding house and I only accept single Christian women who are in the city looking for work, or I only accept young men of good character who have been referred to me by their pastor. But in America in the year 2019, you can't be like, yeah, um, I'm going to like have a boarding house, but um, no jigaboos or beaners, right? <laughs> you just can't do that. Yeah. I mean, Airbnb, yeah, I mean, Air- Airbnb was basically... Years uh, ago, but it is illegal also for uh, fair housing rules and regulations, I believe, as well. well. It, is, it is illegal, but, but, but you can't, right? You can't... So our elite has risen to power on the back of this this non-discrimination kind of airy-fairy ridiculous ideology and um and but they discriminate like hell in their lives and the and the the difference between okay everybody discriminates and the difference between a utopian experiment that doesn't work and and our our present elite has a lot in common with these people is there's a lot of gnosticism Involved in that, you look at like the utopian experiments of like the Seventh Day Adventists, the Millerites, who are like the world is going to end, and we have the secret knowledge, or Joseph Smith, or any one of the you know kind of burned over district in New- upstate New York, you know kind of cults that came out of that area, um, that were gonna you know make the world perfect, um, and had this secret knowledge to make everything better, versus like a colony is like you know Hengist and Horse are like. Hey, we got our bros with their knives and their swords and their saxes and our wives and our children and our flocks and all this and our seed. And this is ours now because we say it is. And fuck you if you think it's not. Well, I think the the Bush family and the Rockefellers in particular were definitely part of some very uh, strange Methodist cults in upstate New York. I remember uh, John D. Rockefeller was, as a kid, was basically raised uh, some in some small church after his dad, who was some kind of uh, traveling con man, bailed out. And his whole worldview is shaped by this tiny uh, sect of, of particular Methodists or something to that effect in, uh, in upstate New York. Hmm. And you know, like there, there was definitely a lot. Of, there was like the Great Awakening period. There was all this really goofy evangelism going on in New England, and it just so happened to craft all of these, uh, or a lot of these major industrialists, or a lot of these major Gilded Age figures. Were if they weren't an immigrant, if they were a native, they were definitely inculcated in some way with these. Uh, these great awakening cults. Yeah. And you guys can correct me if this is uh, off on the coincidence with the great awakening, but the communitarian uh, movement where people were trying to create these intentional communities uh, happened in there. Were, there were, these were the biggest sort of booms, at least uh, happened in the 1840s and 1890s. Uh, there were hundred communities and over a hundred thousand members. Um, most of them did not survive, but these, uh, you know, the, these were things like the Shakers and people who would go off and uh, build basically sort of these uh, planned kind of communities that usually just didn't work out. And, and they had a lot of things in common, uh, at least initially. They were typically led by charismatic founders, which makes sense. Uh, but when they would go away or when people showed up and they just didn't have enough practical skills, uh, they just didn't survive. Uh, but we can get into more of those details, but I just wanted to mention the uh, 
what I think yeah. is a coincidence of the Great Awakening. Yeah, the the Mormons are the most famous example, and they they succeeded. Yeah, uh, they moved first to what around the wh- where was that around the Mississippi River, Southern Illinois, Nauvoo, Nauvoo yeah, Illinois. yeah, and thence to Utah, and then Seventh Day Adventists, and then a lot of them, like you said, just disappeared. There were some real weirdos. Like uh, Noise had a commune where they practiced Christian eugenics. They called it stirper culture. <laughs> Yeah, wow. it, yeah. The uh, it, it all was based upon trying to get uh, the men not to orgasm. You know, to <laughs> and, yeah, and like uh, yeah. The old ladies would teach oh them, God. and then uh, the community <laughs> would wrong. decide who had whose children. Yeah, or, or, there was there was, was so it? much weird uh, support amongst the American literati aristocracy in like uh, the post Jacksonian period, that 1840s period, Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman and all these guys um, who I think when we were, we did the show with Jay Dyer, we basically arrived at the conclusion that they were, they were probably practicing witchcraft in secret. There was some, there was some strange, uh, nature cult going on there well there's, they there's an element of, there yeah. is an element of gnosticism through all of this stuff yeah so, yeah and, and, and they dabbled in in that christian communitarianism and, and they certainly i think supported it and even uh partook in it occasionally well the uh i think the oneida i think it's oneida the yeah, the uh, silverware it comes yeah, from noise the, yeah yeah and and they would um they practice plural marriage and and um, you know, like you know, the shakers, you know, that they just didn't have sex at all, made some great furniture and then disappeared. Um, oh, actually there, there is a surviving, it is the last, uh, surviving shaker colony, uh, today it's in Maine and it has two members. I don't oh, know if they're male okay. or female. <laughs> it it wouldn't matter if they were <laughs> right. And, and so, but what we were talking about earlier, right, is, is a colony is a, a people moving to a new place and taking their new society to that new place and um, trying to re-new England, right? Like they were going to you know, make England again in, 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 in you know, the northern area uh, when the Anglo-Saxon you know, migration or what have you, or the nearest invasion of uh, the Isles and, and Scotland. That that's that's those people going to that place and saying this is ours now and we're gonna we're gonna expand. And this intentional community thing is kind of a rather than like we're just going to this new place. It's usually like we are going to flee from this evil world. There's kind of this Manichaeanism of like we're gonna perfect things. Mm-hmm. I, I know something that you don't know, and I have this Gnostic knowledge of uh, whether it's golden plates or this uh, this little old lady who lives in the woods from. Um, I forget where the, the shaker lady came from, this prophet, right? Um, or, or the, or the, you know, the Millerites who are like, the world is going to end in this time. And I have the secret knowledge and I can do this thing. So that is like, uh, and, and it's, it's a tempting impulse, right? Like if you're at all religious and you live in this godless, satanic, secular society that endorses infanticide, and subsidizes all seven deadly sins with government funds. You want to just be like, you know what? 
you know, wash your hands and just and leave and just be like, fuck it, I hate this, I hate this society, I want to leave it. Well, there was uh, a lot of that I, dynamic going into the the march to the suburbs, and well, that was the, that was the last episode we did with you, Dark. It was basically the expansion of the American suburbs and you know American suburban infrastructure. Yeah, white flight. I, it's just yeah. a part of white flight. Well, uh, you know, I think there's a big difference between, okay, like, um, you know, the Anabaptists have both, I guess you would call them intentional communities. You know, the Amish, they all have separate pieces of property and they all make separate deals with Caesar. So, but they have their 501D pro, uh, nonprofit, uh, you know, for their healthcare and their church. It's a D, not a C. And, um, but uh, the Hutterites, they actually have a colony because they own it collectively, one big piece of land. And so I, I guess that would be the difference is do you have like a legal boundary around your community? You know, because well, I, I know, like, I, I would say that all those are colonies because the, the Amish might, might be trying to live differently, but, but they're not, and they, they're trying to flee from the world, but they're actually not trying to. Um, perfect society. They're just trying to live as Christians. Yeah, I, I think the main difference is a, a colony is sort of taking something that has worked before and moving the venue, whereas an intentional community typically is something that is trying to redo from almost like scratch all of civilization, at least the more ambitious ones. But there's some flavor of that where they, they, they want to do something else. And I think the, the success of people who basically just try to focus on one thing because moving is hard enough rather than doing all of it at once is much higher. I think that's the main reason why you, you see these people who have a system that works and they move somewhere else. They seem to actually be able to continue that process. Um, that, that's right. sort of my, my, my sort of view. Well, like you, you get with like, you know, a bunch of Norwegian fishermen would move. I'm looking at a book now, Promise of Paradise, Utopian communities in British Columbia. And there's like Norwegian fishing villages where everybody just moved. And you get all these Norwegian fishermen who were used to bad weather and difficult sailing conditions and other stuff and, and, and cold and um in the North Atlantic and they moved to the North Pacific and they were perfectly successful because they were used to it. And there was an economic basis of, of the you know of fishing that they knew how to do and they basically just moved places. Um but there's a difference between families or, or doing it individually. Like the, the Hutterites literally like they get to 150 people and then they cast lots between families and then they divide like bacteria and send a random assortment of families to the new colony. And, um, you know, so they, you know, it's very organized how they do colonies. Uh, the, the Jews of Kyrgios Joel, I reckon they were all gathered around some sort of charismatic rabbi. And then they got the bright idea. Let's take over. Was it Orange County, you know, New New York? Yeah. Yes, Orange County, New York. Yeah, let's take over this township, and they did. And what's amazing about that is, you know, they still have their society, and it's but it's uh, underneath the, you know, you know, officially that's a U.S. town. There's a they had to open a public school and everything. You know, but the rabbis run everything behind the scenes. You know, everyone lives on top of each other because you got to walk to the synagogue on Saturday. So they have a, a society, uh, you know, hiding beneath the surface of what's supposed to be a U.S. city, you know, a U.S. town. They uh, and they have the highest use of welfare in the country you know, because they are practicing clandestine marriage. 
where only the religious marriage of the community matters. Uh, so, so far as the federal government is concerned, they're all single mothers. Well, in, speaking in of Thoreau, do you guys remember the uh, uh, B.F. Skinner a book that was Walden <clears throat> inspiration? Two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's and, communities that have used that as sort of their template. There's one in Mexico. It's like yeah. behavioralism and things like that. Yeah, yeah it's all, but the, it's his one of the original ones got uh, became no longer based on the B.F. Skinner work, and I, I believe it's actually communists of some sort. In, uh, yeah, in and uh, of course, Jonestown was communist. You know, it, you know Jonestown and uh, where was that? French Guiana. Where did they yeah. put that? Or is it Guiana. British Guyana? It was, uh, yeah, Guiana. One of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that that you know the secret of that church is that it was actually communist. <laughs> you know, it's it's all Soviet communist. You know, he loved the Soviet Union. You know, the well, Jonestown massacre. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that there's all kinds of weird. He was friends with all kinds of Laurel Canyon weirdos that you guys have talked about previously, and um, just the 20th century is full of weird and wacky and disturbing stuff. So, I mean, if you've been listening to this show for any amount of time, and you trust anything you conventional 20th history checks. Well, textbook. unfortunately, the ones I think we know about are the worst examples because these are the ones, obviously, that captures people's yeah. attention and you know it's scary yeah, and yeah. so emotions fear the fear emotion oh. i think is probably stronger than anything so oh, oh yeah L let me tell you about some of the successful ones the mennonites have been colonizing tennessee uh they've been doing a pretty good job there's even a sect of them that believe that that some there's some mountain that someone got in a vision about where they're supposed to uh win you know stay for the end of the world and so uh they're all building communities around that mountain and um, the Hutterites are wildly successful. In fact, you know, the only reason why you haven't heard about them is because they've mostly been a Canadian problem. But now that they've moved into Montana, uh, no one can uh, underbid, you know, their contracts. You know, they're, 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 they're in Minnesota as well. Um, I, I did a, a no, maybe I should funny. just do this real quick um, as quickly as I can, because there's probably 50 at least that I've got on my list here. Um, but I did a, a survey of the ones on Wikipedia, at least, and then I, I categorized them by sort of what type of intentional communities they are. And I even have, you know, statistics on how many members they have and all that. Um, but the rough categories uh, that I sort of uh, ordained uh, are religious, which are probably the most common. Uh, the ones on there are, are almost all Christian. There are some that uh, do go into sort of uh, various sects of that. And there are some that also pursue a lot of Eastern religions, uh, but I would put them in more of a second category. I would call like kind of new religion because typically what they're trying to do is fuse things together. There's one called the abode of the message in New York. Uh, and this one's real goofy. Uh, it tries to combine Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Taoism, science, and Maoism. Uh, which apparently is a religion now. Um, so uh, <laughs> that reminds me. That reminds me of uh, what's what's that asshole in the Poconos? Uh, Fatola Gulen, what the the Turkish? Oh, the Turkish. Uh, Fatolaki Gulan. Yeah, whatever his name. I don't know. Gulen, Gulan, Gulash. The, the Turkish he, CIA nigger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> He's got some kind of goofy intersectionalist religion. 
fits, you know, a combination of Kabbalah Judaism and uh, Sunni Islam and Sufi Islam and Eastern Christianity. It's this very bizarre cult that he's running of ethnic Turks that believe in five religions at once. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty weird. Um, the the second major category after religion is ecological. A lot of people are trying to live sustainably. They're you know, farming, uh, trying not to use you know oil and you know renewable energy and things like that. Um, that's a very very common one. Uh, the uh, Feintorn Foundation in the UK is an example of that. There's one in Virginia called uh, the Acorn Community, which is spun out of Twin Oaks, which is um, a very, uh, very famous one, uh, and there's just more and more. That's what I mentioned earlier. I think I think that's that's related, yeah, to the Skinner uh, ideas. Yes, it's it spun out of a Skinner experiment, mm-hmm. the Skinner experiment, and I think Virginia, uh, thereabouts. Yeah, yeah, Virginia, exactly. That's right. And then um, just before I move on to the next category, there's one that I wanted to mention because it's pretty famous in the kind of hippie world. Uh, it's called the Farm. It's in Tennessee. Uh, maybe you know about it, Masonius. Um, it has 200 members. It was founded in 1971 by a guy named Stephen Gaskin uh, coming out of San Francisco from the Haight-Ashbury. Uh, and they they kind of are today mainly focused on the ecological stuff, in my opinion. But one of the big aspects of what they were doing in the beginning was kind of um, this free love stuff where they were trying group marriages and most of them kind of fell apart. Um, but one of the things that I, I kind of do kind of like about it is that they emphasize um, pronatalism where they have like midwife services and they were so successful at it that in the beginning they had a, a baby boom where they were having problems sort of like housing people uh, as opposed to some of these other uh, intentional communities where whereby it's kind of like a it, either they sort of do the whole like you know orgy thing where everybody's trying to like you know get some or they they can't really attract families and they just die off but this one's been going for a while um so they kind of have that dynamic reminds me of uh drops the drop city which there was a tea boil novel about it was in colorado it was like an artist commune that lasted maybe Mm -hmm. five or six years um, yeah i've actually been to some artist co-ops in uh cities and they're very interesting places but you can kind of tell there's a lot of like attempts at hooking up uh and so what really attracts people there is sort of questionable and the sustainability aspect is kind of the other thing. Um, next big category I would say were the political ones where people are kind of like anarchists or communists. Uh, and then, uh, notably absent from this listing of Wikipedia, but I put it on my own because, uh, it's sort of known in our circles is the Casa Pound movement in Italy, which is arguably fascist i mean i don't really know of any other equivalent that's actually successful that you could call fascist so i'll just give them the label of that uh and they're founded um on some of the principles of ezra pound uh, hence the name and so one of the things they look for is uh uh, people who are against usury Uh, they're very anti-immigrant um and originally they were sort of uh, anti-semitic but they've kind of dropped that recently um and they've kind of shown sympathy for Israel's uh, immigration policies, things like that. Um, there's some libertarian ones. There's, there's a few that are famous. The seasteading movement uh, in California mostly was kind of this Peter Thiel thing where they were going to, everybody just get on a boat and just get the hell away from this U.S. government thing. Uh, and they've kind of uh, petered off a little bit, but they found a home in French Polynesia, believe it or not, whereby this government is going to give them 
uh, rights to kind of put their ships and I guess ostensibly protect them from pirates. I don't really know exactly what they're. Yeah, Doug Casey was trying to do that for years, and he had all kinds of strange, potentially dealings with CIA type uh, with the company, and in looking at, I think the various places in the Caribbean, Mm -hmm. as well as like Tonga, if I remember correctly. Yeah, there's just a lot of uh, you know empty space in the South Pacific. in particular, uh, in Tonga, th- that's in the, in the, in the case of the Casey. That's like he has something going on. I think Ar- Argentina, and that's I guess you would say maybe a colony for the very wealthy, the very wealthy libertarians. Yeah, yeah, that, like that, Patagonia or something. It's far south. Or... There's a final category which I'm going to save for last, but I'm going to get to that wealthy thing uh, later uh, in, in short time. Um, just let me finish up with these last libertarian examples because there's kind of. Uh, there's a funny one in here, but uh, the, the second most famous one, or arguably the most famous one, is the Free State Project in New Hampshire. Uh, the idea was to get 20,000 people to pledge to move to New Hampshire and then kind of create, uh, through kind of sheer political uh, inertia or, or mass, uh, be able to effectively vote in libertarian policies. And they actually were successful in getting 18 Free Staters in the, in the State House of Representatives. <laughs> If nothing else, but they have the, no the unintended positions. side effect of that, though, the free state project is that it basically turned New Hampshire into a blue state. It created the conditions that allowed for a massive influx of Bostonians and other mass holes into New Hampshire. But why, why yeah. is that, that their fault? What exactly do they do to bring in blue staters? Because most of the people they voted in are Republicans uh, on the sort of free state project people. Before the Free State Project started, New Hampshire was definitely still a purple state, but a purple state that went red. Uh, the Republican Party really didn't have much of a problem in New Hampshire. It was actually starting to do very well. Um, the issue being that New England Republicans had two things happen. One, they had an, a massive influx of these sort of weird libertarian types who immediately buttled some of them out of office. Um, and then immediately lost to Democrats. Two, uh, when this movement happened, you might call it, uh, it creates these general circumstances for gentrification, creates this massive boon for the need for retail, need for little tech shops, whatever. Well, naturally, this led to a huge influx of Massachusetts folk into New Hampshire. Now, Trump... Did pretty well in New Hampshire, by you know, effectively won New Hampshire, almost effectively won New Hampshire. Um, but in four years or eight years, that's going to be totally beyond the park. That's just not going to be possible. And it's because of a massive influx of sort of weird, almost center-left libertarian types and hardcore progressives who are fleeing you know, the, the terrible living standards of Boston. Yeah, I think it's got to be mostly mass holes, man. Yeah, it could have just happened that way anyway without the Free Saders doing it. I, I don't think – I think it's a coincidence more than a cause, well, I think. Yeah, well, I, I'll, I'll believe – you know, I believe that uh, they, they're not as competitive against Democratic candidates as the Republicans were. I can I can believe that. Okay. Well, that, that could, that could actually make sense then. Actually, and uh, and this is this is what the difference between successful colonies – do so there's like there's mexican colonies in the state of washington right now 
there's there's Mexican colonies in every major city in the United States. I mean, I think California is a Mexican state effectively at this point. Yeah, it's it's a it's a. I think it was Fast the Nation uh, actually that, that reported last Mexico, year Mexico. that the uh, Mexican presidential candidate uh, was campaigning in California because there's so many Mexicans there that you know he needs their vote. <laughs> <laughs> it's so absurd. Uh, yeah, let's pretend we have a country, guys. Yeah, well, and and here's the difference, right? Here's the problem with the libertarians, and this is why all of their all of their efforts came to naught when they stopped being right-wing libertarians and started is every successful colony whether it's the Hutterites or the Mormons or the <clears throat> or the you know any one of the Anabaptists uh, the, there's a line there's a line on who's in and who's out and if you're a member of the community they'll give you the shirt off their back they'll 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 physically carry you 2 miles to the doctor if you, you know, hurt yourself and can't walk there, your brothers in that colony will carry you two miles on their, you know, walking. But if you're not a member of the community, you're not a member of the community. You're, you're one of the, you're, you are one of the Gentiles and they do not need to deal with you. And if you've ever dealt with like Mormons in the American West, they're very, uh, generous and friendly but if you're not in the club you're not in the club and um some places you know in utah in parts of idaho you can't do business if you're not a member of the club and th that's one of the things that they were successful and and because the libertarians are just like if we just give everyone liberty man then, then obviously they'll come to the conclusion that Austrian economics is the way to go and anarcho-capitalism is the only logical political system. So I'm just going to pretend that I can give these women and non-whites weed and they'll instantly understand the importance of Marie Rothbard. And the non-aggression principle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's individualism. I mean, it's just, you don't have a community if you don't have a collective identity. You just you just don't have one, and and the problem with modern libertarianism is the hyper individualism and the libertinism. Yeah. Well, I'll uh, give you the the dumbest example on my list. Uh, there, I never heard of this until I looked into it. But uh, there's a place apparently in Texas called Paulville because Ron Paul is a Texas uh, congressman, uh, and they they named this place after him. Uh, when he was sort of running for president back in 08 and 12 and it has attracted zero zero people uh, it basically has a board of shareholders and there's plans but actually nothing on the ground yet there's plans to do something with 50 acres and this is you know almost 10 years or more depending on when you start the clock uh later uh it's um it's really hard to get libertarians to agree to things uh and i guess this is the the worst example for them unfortunately um i don't know if it's the worst example i maybe the worst example would be the confidence man uh, jeff erwick and his attempt at making some kind of libertarian colony in acapulco of all places and this uh i believe a double homicide i can link the daily beast article but one of the people who in there uh on the promises of Berwick was a murdered gangland style. Oh, wow. 
There's uh, there's one more um, group, and I, I want to call them not really political necessarily. They're just more. They're not even a colony in the sense that they're going somewhere else. They're just staying put. But let's let's talk briefly about Arania, if you guys would like. Uh, they're in South Africa. Uh, pretty famous in our circles. I would categorize them as separatist because they're basically just like they're trying to basically build a wall around themselves, and they represent sort of you know some of the the remnants of the Afrikaner culture and the Boers that are farmers who have been there for a long time, four hundred years at least, from what I know, and are basically seeing what uh, Julius Malema and his friends are doing to the rest of the country, which is basically confiscating people's lands, white people's lands, uh, and uh, not killing them yet, but effectively economically genociding them. And so they've decided to uh, build a sort of a, a castle uh, or a, a walled town uh, of three and a half square miles, roughly. Uh, and they have a population of uh, about 1,600, uh, from what I read. And they have their own radio station. They've got uh, schoolhouses. I think they're they're recording actually record births, which is uh, obviously a key indicator if you want things to go successfully in the future. So I'd love to hear what you guys think about it. I have I have some thoughts on that actually. So you guys, please correct me if you think I'm wrong about this. But as much as I respect what those guys are doing, uh, to my mind, it's the opposite of an anti-fragile type situation because what's going to happen is as things get worse in South Africa, the target on their back is going to get bigger and they're going to get see zero support from foreign states when time comes to get Wagoed. So what do you guys think? Yeah, the, uh, uh, you know, it's flag has a, uh, a boor youth like rolling up his sleeves, you know, because uh, what got them in trouble was uh, hiring all those people that weren't them to do work. Yeah, well, so it was like Arthur Kemp. To Eugene Terra Blanche, right? Ter- <laughs> Eugene Terra Blanche was yeah, he was murdered by his hired Negro help. Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, oh, I like Orania, but you know, you're right. It's it's a big target. Any successful colony will probably be on the DL. Like you know, you won't hear about it. That's what you know. That's part of its success and its protection. Yeah, I, yeah I agree and their success guys. would be used yeah. against them because they would be a mod. You know, all all the rhetoric you would expect is as things descend into the maelstrom, and and they're doing okay. Well, then it's more proof of of this white supremacy and white yeah. exploitation, white, white racism, white privilege. Yeah, living yeah. living on their own separate. So their their success yeah. as things get worse, their success will be held against them. Yeah, but I don't have any alliances with real powers with, with other states, which is if what they need. If they're having a baby boom, though, you're seeing the advantages of uh, living around your people and having a culture. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I would say I would say it's better than the alternatives at the moment, but unfortunately, I don't think it's a viable, you know, ideal long-term <laughs> solution. But I, I would say continue, continue doing it while you can. Because uh, I don't know what the options are in, in South Africa for these people other than leaving, which may be what they need to do ultimately, unfortunately. Uh, they would need to take over the state, ultimately. You know, they love their land. They're, a, you know, they love they love the land. So I know how they feel. Mm-hmm. Well, but but that's how they took over the state the first time was the, with the Bruderbrum. There was this hidden right-wing fraternity that, that took over the, you know, in the early 20th century, they took over the state. And... Yep. That's that's how they took over the state the first time, and uh, 
they're going to have to do something like that again. And mm-hmm. the not hewing their own wood and drawing their own water is what got them in trouble in the first place. Mm-hmm. And and not, I mean, you know what the thing that killed them was letting all these Africans have medical care. Like Norman Borlaug killed the world, fam. Not a, you know, like, like that's that's you know you don't want to who really killed the world, Norman Borlaug. Um, well, yeah, I, I think they built the largest hospital in the world, and the population exploded. Oh, it, they, yeah, they were taking care of natives, and the population exploded. Yeah, sure. And so, um, what what you have to do, what what a successful colony does, whether it's the Mexican colony on welfare down the street or the Curious Joel people. You can't just walk into Curious Joel. If you're not a Jew, you're not welcome there. And that, they will force you out. And so what white people need to do, particularly white people who are listening to us, right? Um, and this show is part of that, right? When's the last time any of you guys watched TV except ironically? I watched a Bollywood film the other day. But yeah, like, Was it on TV or did you just downloaded <laughs> I, I i downloaded a Bollywood film it was, it was quite good actually yeah i've been watching korean films lately but yeah we don't watch broadcast television it, it doesn't sound like dark it was yeah, funny so, so, there so, were... none of, so none of you right so so none of you uh allow regime propaganda into your home right yeah well, what i was going to mention was uh it was like last week uh was the oscars uh like literally none of us except hans who's uh sort of close to that scene a little bit, uh, knew it was even happening. Same thing happened to me with the Super Bowl. Um, but I've always been kind of uh, a little bit uh, right. out of out of so place to, in this country. Um, so to steal a tagline from, from my co-host, or you got to secede in your mind first, right? You got to understand that you have people and that there are people who are not your people aren't entitled to your um, they're entitled to your, you know, forbearance of violence and and general goodwill, but you don't got to go out of your way for these people, and uh, you don't you don't got to do them favors. You don't got to help them. You don't have to, you know, like you don't have to worry about whether or not you know their kids are hungry at night. Who cares? Not your problem. And and these successful colonies, right? Um, you know that Irania is doing. They're they're creating their own entertainment. They're they're not getting the what was me we stole the land kind of stuff from like you know Charlize Theron believes that she's a bad person because she's a boor right so none of the boor children in and she has she has no this. actual children of her own but she's adopted I don't know how many but I think more than one uh probably from South black. Africa but black children at least um in and she's turning one of them trans I think Jeez. so she's obviously a deeply disturbed person and and I don't recommend like caring about her or anything like that. But see, one of the things about like not caring about these people is not even not like not even knowing their names, not even knowing who they are, not caring about them or their stupid problems or their stupid Hollywood stuff and educating your own children, educating them in the way that you want them to go and an understanding that. Um, that, um, that, uh, 
yeah, yeah, it's tribalism, right? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. The, 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 we're we're wired for tribalism. We're not wired for whatever it is <laughs> we're trying to do right now, you know. And tribal, the tribal morality is, you know, you you don't treat uh, members of other tribes like they're full human beings. I mean, that they, they're not <laughs> to tribal people, and that, so there's a boundary around your identity, and you know, people, you know, within you know the tribe are are people. You know, and they're equals, they're brothers, you know, but people outside are aliens and you use collective punishment for the aliens. So, you know, a member of this tribe, you know, did something, you know, did something bad to one of your own. So you can just find any old member of that tribe and, and hurt them. You know, it's collective punishment. It's actually how we're wired. It's the code of amity and the code of enmity, excuse me, you know, to use Spencer's term, you know. But it's uh, the dual code of morality, and we're wired that way. So, and it's ineluctable. It's, you know, game theory. Simple logic tells you that this is true. You know, because E.O. Wilson and David Sloan Wilson, you know, the way they put it is uh, uh, selfish individuals beat altruistic individuals one-on-one. -on -one. But groups of altruistic individuals working together beat groups of selfish individuals. Right. So you're the purpose of your altruism is not it's never been for strangers. It is for members of your tribe so that you can work together and outcompete other groups. Well, the, the argument of for globalism or whatever sort of uh, ism that incorporates more people into your group is that if you can all be altruistic to each other, then that formula would be even more true. The problem, though, is that the more outgroups you incorporate into your in-group, the more likely that they're going to undercut each other and start cheating. And that, that just seems to be how it works. And unfortunately, we've sort of reached a point where it's sort of obvious that this scale is not working out, so we have to reduce it. Now, I think the real hard question, though, is what is the proper scale? Because one of the things I wanted to bring up is that I do think being too small will get you killed. And I think this Irani example is perfect because they ultimately are not competitive as a state, even though they have... Uh, probably a higher average quality per person. They just don't have enough people to, to fight against their enemies. And so I would say this about sort of, uh, you know, why there are too many uh, Jews in Harvard uh, than there should be is because on average, I would say Jews are fairly intelligent and probably more intelligent than whites. However, there are more in quantity because there's just so many more white people in the United States. There are more intelligent white people than Jews. So therefore there should be more whites in Harvard than Jews, and the opposite is true. Uh, and so the, the difference, though, between the groups and why that even happens is because the Jews have an in-group preference and the whites don't. And so this is sort of the problem. Yeah, the amount of Jews at Harvard would, of course, be... Well, I mean, when it was a divinity school, right? I mean, that's, that's what it's supposed to be. Well, they, they combine their in-group preference with Crypsis. You know, because it wouldn't work if uh, it was obvious that they're uh, always hiring, you know, the Jewish guy that's, that's interviewing over the goyim you know so the the crypsis is important you know the the uh, camouflage did you guys watch the uh the lobby the documentary that al jazeera just put out about the israel lobby no, no i haven't no, seen that yet. was it at cpac uh, no no but uh um no it's uh it was uh the, the tedious guys mentioned it um and did a background on it but it's it's astonishing the level of um, subversion and just just outright hijacking of the federal government these people have managed, and and the number one thing that they're afraid of is being found out. You know that old quote is true, and and uh, because if you 
you know, the, the real problem is, is the WQ, right? The white question. What is wrong with these white people that they let these foreigners raid them constantly, steal from them constantly? You know, if, if I was to go down to Mexico with 10 of my buddies, get just rip shit drunk and kill a little Mexican girl who was on her way to church in the morning, um, not only would I, would but probably, trial. yeah, it would just be, I'd, I'd be beaten to death in my car, but Mexicans can get here and drink themselves silly and kill a little girl on the way to, on her way to church Sunday morning all the time. And, uh, you know, and this is actually an attitude that's fairly common among the Pakistani rapers in, in the UK is, well, if you guys really had a problem with this, you'd just kill people. So you're not. So obviously you don't really care. Oh, no, they're right. They don't. <laughs> no, seriously, it's their revealed preference. Their actions are, and they don't really care. You know, I, I think it's the dual code of morality has gone haywire or something where they think that only white people are capable of a guilt and culpability, and they'll get mad as hell at, at their fellow whites, just not the, the foreigners. They don't identify with them. They're not people. And, that, you know, that sounds crazy because you think it'd be the reverse because of cultural Marxism, but I, I really think that, no, they don't care. You know, because uh, they would do something about it. And, uh, you know, the, uh, yeah, the white question, I mean, there's probably several things that happen. But, you know, I like, you know, the Nisbet, you know, thesis that basically, you know, the state's been ripping apart the boundaries around our communities, you know, for ages. And uh, all those intermediate institutions that we used to identify with that were our institutions, you know, they've been replaced with, you know, uh, the state, you know, and its institutions. So I, well, the, the classic example that we were talking about mutual aid societies and healthcare earlier would be sixty. The introduction of the HMO, the yeah. introduction of of healthcare management organizations in the sixties, and then um, with Reagan. I'm not, I'm sorry, not Reagan, uh, Nixon. And I know in the show we try and give counterfactuals, we try to be pro Nixon, but this is one of the areas where Nixon totally fucked up. Um, and by all accounts, he allowed himself to be influenced, I think, by the head of uh, Kaiser Healthcare Group, or the, the precursor to Kaiser Permanente, uh, basically convinced Nixon to uh, expand the HMO program in the United States. And it's been a disaster for healthcare. And, you know, ironically, the HMO debacle and uh, the beginnings of the end of, you know, decentralized and effective U.S. healthcare which was often sort of uh, created with these precursors of, I think in 71, you know, uh, Senator Kennedy was out there talking about the healthcare crisis in America. In 1971, you know, America was still a well-functioning place, reasonably. There was no healthcare crisis. But, you know, th this meme of there's a healthcare crisis or there's some kind of problem in premium coverage or there's some kind of problem in healthcare supplier, there's a problem in price there, there's a problem in logistics or whatever. You know, there's a, there's just a, there's a problem in product. Uh, it's always used to you know destroy, like as Nisbet's talking about, destroy local institutions or just intermediate institutions that you can count on to be somewhat reliable. Now, you know, Obamacare was basically the compromise that Americans got because Americans. Um, I think we're basically ready for some kind of healthcare revivalism. Whether it went fully 
socialistic and it became a Medicare for all program or whether it was actually, you know, it became decentralized and it completely became privatized again. And a lot of the federal government uh, simply stepped out of the healthcare market. It, we got the per- worst possible solution that furthered the destruction of local, local healthcare markets. Well, th- is there such a thing as a local in the average white person's mind? I, I don't think there is. I mean, not anymore. Yeah, orphanages. There were all sorts of things that were run by particular orders, and you know, you can go to an old graveyard and see all the woodmen of the world tree stump, you know, stones, headstones, and it was a way of collectively, you know, what what we use, uh, you know, insurance companies for and all that. It's a way to collectively bear the burden, you know, to leverage, you know, uh, you know, to purchases that we that were too big for us to make as individuals. Uh, people used to do that in these cooperatives and collectives, and they identified with them, and there was like you know real loyalty there. But you know the average American, his community, it's like Robert Putnam has told us that people just watch TV now because because uh, of the diversity. You, you're not going to go outside. You're not going to walk down the street and say hello to your neighbor sitting on the porch. There, uh, aliens have raided our communities, and so you're going to stay inside where it's safe and watch TV. And TV is your community. You know, because you, you know, you, you are a you social being. We are more you social than wolves, not as you social as ants in E.O. Wilson's estimation, but we are very you social creatures. And so we're sitting here watching a fake community, you know, generated by, you know, uh, CNN and, you know, Anderson Cooper, you know, worked for the CIA and is a Vanderbilt. But, you know, we're going to pretend that he's a journalist. Well, I know, think and, the same applies to Yeah, and it's not opera. just the racial aliens either. I mean, Many people they have you know neighbors who represent the traitor spectrum, and maybe you know as we speak, plotting to murder them over politics. But yeah. I think it happened recently, not too long ago. There was a there was a case of this. I forget where in the country, but uh, the a neighbor was planning some kind of murder against, or I, th- I think they killed. It was a dog shooting in this case, I believe that I'm remembering. It happened with Rand Paul. So, Area yeah, Rand Paul, Rand, his, sitting his boomer, senator, psychotic well, boomer and, trader neighbor. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Brush was too close to his yard, right? Uh, well, with um, well, it was especially with, uh, about there, that. It was interesting. Who, ha- there was a guy whose dog was killed while he was at a Trump rally. Yes, um, that's the one I was thinking. Eric. Yeah, and Rand Paul was uh, he was he's not a large man. Was uh, physically attacked by his neighbor over. Over a property dispute, I don't think it was in in any way political, but um, you know, but his dad, who is my favorite politician of my lifetime, you know, Congressman Ron Paul, uh, he was elected because he was this he was the local OBGYN and he was you know nice to all the ladies whose babies he delivered for twenty five years and to a lot of babies, yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, something libertarians didn't seem to learn a lesson from is to you know, hey, maybe you could reach people more if you actually did something for somebody. But yeah, just yeah. that out there for a bunch right. of people who believe in the market, right? Yeah. Well, so here's the here's the thing about all that, right? Is like stop letting yourself get raided. This is what we've talked about all the time. Okay, um, we are not actually a wealthy country anymore. That was pretty clear after 2008, but they've managed to paper it over with the Fed and a bunch of other stuff. So, you know, the outstanding debt. Well, the, the wealth um, is concentrated in very few hands, and arguably they're not even American anymore. 
they, they have well, more they, allegiance to their own class and global oh, yeah. circles than yeah they're transnational they're, well, yeah globally globalist <laughs> reptilians so yeah well, well whatever you want to call them they're not they're certainly not my friends and neighbors i'll tell you that um and, and so, they're certainly not human yeah <laughs> no <laughs> whatever you want to call them right so uh, that that wealth that's uh, that's just been hoovered up by the banks and the financialization economy since the end of uh, you know since the closing of the gold window and the you know working man's wages have been flat since 1973 and yep uh, we papered over that with you know just incredible amounts of personal debt and, and not that, only that I mean the do- the value of the dollar since the inflation of the 70s has uh, I mean this includes from the beginning of the the dollar but. Most of this is coming from the closing of the gold window and the sort of hyperinflation. Or it was sort of not hyper in technical terms, but uh, it was inflation over a long enough period to basically reduce the value of the dollar by 95% since its inception. So the, the wealth of the common man who does not have those uh, appreciating assets and the sort of bubble aspects of our economy like real estate or stocks uh, really has been screwed. Well, or if you're not a boomer, right? I mean, like, They'll tell you like, oh, you need to get a 401k. And I'm like, why? The, but the see, demand th- th- is- that's what happened when the financialization happened because the wages were not going up, as you correctly stated, since 1973. But what was happening was people were getting into the stock market and that's the boomers. They basically were satiated enough because the stock market went up 10%, you know, 20% a year and sometimes uh, to the point where that compensated them for the, the, lo- the lack of wages. But their kids have not experienced that. Uh, and so that's why we're all here talking tonight, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, well but, but no, but, but think about that for just a second, right? Like, you know, people will tell me like, well, you need to save more for retirement. I'm like, why would I like, like, uh, save more for retirement? Have you checked out a P over E ratio recently? All these stocks are ridiculously no, overpriced. All it's, I'm, it's all I'm doing is just buying, um, you know, housing prices. I, I had a friend who, uh, was recently buying a house and there were people wanting, you know, half a million dollars for like a reasonably sized home in my little bedroom community. And it was boomers wanting this man and his family to finance their retirement, essentially. And he was just like, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and even, you know, what he did pay was ridiculous, but, um, you can't, you cannot, uh, expect things to just, you know, demand to endlessly uh, increase without there being people capable of meeting that demand. And you, and well, this is why whatever immigration, ra- whatever is, racial, is allowed. I mean, whatever I, racial egalitarianism you were taught in school, I'm sorry, no. Juan with the 90 IQ is not the same as John with the 120 IQ. No, but he still places demand on the housing market. And I, I really do think this is one of the biggest reasons immigration is allowed. I mean, it's also on the consumption side. I mean, he's going to buy more toilet paper, as Steve Saylor will say, but he's also going to need a place to live. And maybe they live in, you know, five people to a house as they're wont to do when they come in, you know, illegally. Uh, but that will increase the value of property. Uh, for the people who own the assets. And so I think that's why you see this run up on the coast uh, and, it, it benefits you're, you're the absolutely people right are, yeah yeah it lowers it lowers uh it's a wealth transfer from wage earners to uh capital owners and if you consider you know owning real estate to be capital you know so uh, you know the uh who, yeah. who which generation owns real estate you know is <laughs> is the boomers 
Right. And so, uh, just like the, uh, you know, the, the big capitalists of Wall Street, they want uh, the, it, they are receiving the wealth transfer from the wage earners. You know, when you well, flood I, the labor market here. So I'm I'm almost forty. I didn't get on the property ladder till a few years ago. You know, and and uh, I'm on it before lots of my friends were, and certainly. You know, a lot of people I know with kids, that it's everything that worked for previous generations isn't going to work for you. If you're under 50 years old, or especially if you're under 40, what worked for previous generations is not going to work for you. And there's lots of reasons. And I would suggest that you check out the archives of this program, uh, which is my personal favorite podcast to kind of get into why that is and why things don't work. Like our program, explain all this stuff. These guys have already done it. I don't need to go into that. But the way you make a system that's not working for you work is you secede. You, you do what the Amish have done. You, you recollectivize. You do things like have two or three commercial washers in a, in a common building for laundry you do you you understand that we're not as rich as we thought we were and so the stuff that costs a lot of money costs a lot of energy you collectivize those things yeah well co-housing is uh, a colony in miniature isn't it it's it's a way you could start a colony you know and you know the boomers you know the the reverse mortgages you know you know there's such a selfish generation i don't mind saying it either and i don't care who gets mad about me saying it you know it was it used to be expected that there was some sort of generational justice where we take care of one another and i know that southern englishmen you know they weren't as good about it as northern englishmen you know they didn't build a grandfather's house you know behind the main house in order to take care of the old people and uh and american families they are um, insufferable you know sometimes like uh (laughs) you know you should leave usually when you're 18 uh but the generational justice we're coming to the end of the game here you know if uh you know they you know the boomers are the richest generation that america will ever see and um and like you know you guys have pointed out wages have been flat for men you know since the 1970s basically and that sterilized them you know the 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 eroding heft of uh you know uh, our economic advantage over women uh you know, it sterilized a generation of men. That's why we've entered the post-family era. One of the main reasons. There's and, uh oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I was just. Oh. I'm just saying. I, I guess I would like to, you know, point out. It's like demography is the most predictable of the sciences. We know what 2045 looks like. We have a pretty darn good idea, and I know that our goose is already cooked. We already have so many uh, non-identifying immigrants here. And even if we clarify exactly what the 14th Amendment means or that footnote that, you know, that justice put in back in 82 or, you know, even if we clarify that, all those people are going to be grandfathered in. And so they're already here. So we don't have a country and we don't even have communities. That's why people hang out online all day. That's why uh, university professors have more in common with their cohorts, you know, 3,000 miles away than they do with their students, you know, in the next room. 
you know, we have formed electronic tribes. I, I, tribes. I remember actually being a student in college and uh, just kind of going around the college town and seeing how nice the professor's houses were and sort of telling myself, oh, yeah, maybe one day I'll be able to do that, too. I mean, I'm going to college, right? That's that's my ticket to prosperity. Uh, and I've, I've long since abandoned that that dream of just living in a, in a community as plush as one of these college town professor's houses sits in. Uh, they really are in a sort of different class than their students, and I, I don't know if they realize it. I mean, I think I'm sure some of them do, but uh, no, more, no, more of their students. But regardless, they, they their students, left-wing psychos. Their students need to realize it, you know, regardless of the professors, because they're such a minority anyway. But the majority of people need to really ask themselves: Is college doing me any good? Uh, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people it's not. There was a, I, I tell this to a lot of people because it's from sort of a authoritative source, if you believe in that sort of thing. But uh, there was an MIT professor who was on, uh, I believe it was Tucker Carlson, I think it was, uh, who actually said uh, only 5% of the people currently going to college should be there. Uh, because, you know, historically, that's roughly what the number of uh, people in the nation were sort of, who were pretty academically oriented and, and inclined, uh, were, were able to, the, the economy was able to support them, in other words. And, but the rest of the economy, it needs, you know, plumbers and, and manufacturing people and people who, you know, drive, you know, trucks and, and whatnot. There's, truck drivers make $80,000 a year compared to uh, college graduates who make uh, probably less than 50. Uh, so think about that. I mean, the guy who basically knows how to turn a wheel and maybe shift a uh, transmission, but it's probably automatic these days, um, he makes more money than the guy who spent four years, you know, studying the, the sort of intricacies of uh, underwater basket weaving or whatever sort of, you know. And if he invested the money, he'd be that much richer, you know, because the, the rich get richer when you I, talk about investing. I know, in I know truck it. drivers who have been doing it for a long time who own property after property. They have done well. And it, it just frustrates me because I've, I've gone to a, I went to a pretty good school and, you know, I, I don't I don't resent the guy for being successful, but it's like this is a massive waste of human capital in this country. So people really got to well, question things. Well, even yeah, the Charles Murray published a book. Charles Murray published a book, Real Education, probably ten years ago now. I mean, it's um, yeah, read it. one of the first red pills I ever took. And it, and I know all, all of us are fans of Steve Saylor. Steve Saylor's been beating this drum for probably probably twenty years. Well, I've been reading him for fifteen, and he's been talking about it the whole time. I've been reading him. Only, I mean, Norm just on Excel is your friend. Uh, if if it takes an average IQ of 115 to, to be successful at college in a, in, a, in a real subject like a, you know the kind of humanities where you where you read Latin and Greek and and really have to get in and you really understand the Shakespeare and and that kind of thing and you actually receive a genuine education, not the nonsense that people are learning now. Only about you know. 15 to 20 percent of the population at the absolute max is even capable of it let you let alone interested in that sort of thing well i mean what's what's the who's going to pay off all that debt no one no (laughs) one yeah well who's going to save the united states from all these immigrants all the ones that were born here mind you no one no one. The, the American people would never say you're not grandfathered in, you know, immigrant that was born here, even though we've just, you know, re reinterpreted the 14th Amendment. You know, so the, the, 
the only future your people have is you know to form a tribe and to form these colonies and i'm i'm serious when i say that and and it's not like you know we're hiding or we're running away this is this is our shot to have communities you know, because Walmart's not going to be providing communities, Amazon's not going to be doing it, and the U.S. government sure as hell's not going to be providing uh, communities. Well, so this is our only chance. Look at, look at Amazon and Walmart. Church. Yeah, look at Amazon and Walmart. Right, the two biggest corporations in the country. Amazon just made eleven billion dollars tax free. Tax free. And, and Amazon just deplatformed. Love Greg Johnson. Hate Greg Johnson. Whatever. They just took all of his books off of Amazon. They effectively mm -hmm. killed his ability to make a living selling books. Well, have you heard how many miles those workers work? For I mean, they walk all these miles every day for Amazon. They pee their pants because they're afraid of going to the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, you know that well, but, but but Amazon exists, right? Off the their commons. Whole, yeah, their, their whole business model is is parasitism off the commons by yeah, not stealing from any the commons, tax. Yeah. Not paying yeah, any taxes and not paying any local taxes. So, you know, your local uh, book, you know, ye old bookshop paid city taxes to maintain the road, the, the delivery truck that delivered all their books to their bookstore uh, used. And so the damage that truck did to the to the road in your town. Which is a 10,000 times more damage than your passenger car did for the same mile. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, that was was somehow paid for, and the road didn't get turned to shit. Well, Amazon has been effectively using UPS to destroy roads in America for fifteen years, twenty years, however long they've been in business, without paying anything in taxes to these towns where they're just where they're just destroying the uh, where they're using the resources and not paying any taxes into it. So of course they're making. Actually, I don't even know if they are making money. But you know, they barely do. I mean, it's it's. I don't know that you talk about valuations and Wall the Street. Only, yeah, the only uh, division runs a fucking profit is AWS. Yeah, which has nothing really to do with their original business model. Right. Um, AWS. What's that? Amazon, Amazon Web Services. Web, yeah, it's basically I mean, their, their cloud Amazon platform. Web, yeah, my company uses AWS. I mean, I've I've actually considered getting AWS certified. Um, it's, it's it's massive. so expensive though i mean it, it, you know, we it, don't need to get into the weeds, but, but i would say yeah. that at this point um roughly a third if not more of the domestic yeah. internet infrastructure is based around aws alone mm. um, and, I, and, and i would say that within 15 mm. to 20 years if it continues to work as well as it does that could be well over 50 percent Mm, I don't know if it's that high, but I mean, there's it a certain segment it, of, it, it, of it the market. So they do. I, can, I I know they control of the cloud market, uh, the plurality of it, if not the majority. Uh, but that does not constitute the entire internet. I mean, there's there's a lot of sort of private hosting, okay, and so corporations, I, and or, 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 Google, and you know all that. Well, but but all of these companies do that, right? I'll give you two more examples, right? Uh, PayPal, right? All of our friends have been kicked off PayPal, and and. I don't mean to sound arrogant, but if if I could use my real name and receive payments, um, I'm better at this than Sean Hannity. Yeah, I, I, I know. I think about that all the time. I mean, it, it's so irritating that these guys get up there. And they, what really bothers me, too, is that they actually they think they're courageous in what they do. 
Uh, and maybe they actually believe there's sort of warmed over conservatism or, or liberalism or whatever it is that's so mainstream it puts everybody else to sleep who's in sort of our circles. But I mean, they have no personality. And the reason they're on the air is because they don't color outside the lines. Uh, and uh, they, they make a killing well, off of it. And so controlled and opposition. That's what well, sure. But, but I can't receive payment because I'm a bad person. I can't use Twitter because yeah. I'm a bad person. You know, like I've been removed from Twitter. My my, you know, I have to sock up on Facebook. I I can't, you know, like, uh, right, you know, right. it's okay to, when a company I, does it dark, okay? Yeah, 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 right. You know, but, but, <laughs> but you know, I how you know how absurd is that? I my best friends call me dark. Like I can't use my name. I know. Actually, you know, like how 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 absurd is this that this sort of thing happens? And and this is right that you know PayPal, right? Like, well. We don't shouldn't have to like, well, you know what? Actually, you should. And here's why. Because those taxpayers in the United States and the United States military are the ones who like provide you with a business environment where no one's just going to show up and steal all your stuff, Peter Thiel. Because everywhere else in the world that isn't white, Western, and Christian, they would just like take your faggy ass, beat the crap out of you, and take everything you own. Well, you know what's strange about Thiel? I mean, he, he's not actively involved in PayPal uh, by any means anymore. I don't know if he even, like, is paying attention to this stuff because if I were him, I'd be ashamed, you know, because he did found the company with, uh, you know, one or two other guys mainly. And it, 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 it does sort of beg the question to me, like, what is he doing? You know, apparently he's this sort of, like, dissonant leader, apparently. But, I mean, this is the best we got, which is pretty pathetic. Um, so, again, or, you know. Or, or whoever, like. Yeah. Whether it's it's Sergey Brin or, or or the other Amazon guys or the the, the Jeet who's in charge of Microsoft now or or whatever, you are here because white people built something nice, and they follow the law and they don't beat the hell out of you and take your stuff, the way that they would everywhere else to you know circle around the beginning of our conversation. The guy who in India has to fly to work because everybody knows that he is stealing from them somehow, and they would beat him to death on his way to work if he didn't it's, take a helicopter. And, it's not even endemic to like white people as a whole. You know, in, I remember in France, the French taxi cab union kidnapped an Uber executive. You guys remember that? And they held what? him hostage for like three days and tortured him. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're known for that. I mean, they used to uh, when the EU got basically rolling uh, and a lot of these, uh, you know, agricultural markets were opened up, relatively speaking, to, uh, you know, the traditional local markets. I think it was the French who basically like intercepted one of the trucks and like burned it, you know, on the highway. I mean, you never see that in places like America. Yeah. I mean, you can't, it's really endemic to Americans and I guess in some kinds of Western Europeans. Uh, it it is not endemic to whites as a whole. There are plenty of whites. Yeah, the, I, you can look at the entire yeah. the entire Bolshevik experiment right. Right. with with whites in Eastern Europe as you know this uh, anti or uh, of you know the American respectability cause for e- even the moments where you've been totally screwed, still maintaining respectability towards people that screw you over. I think it's by design well, in America. More like, I, just, I, I just to clarify, thing or, I, or I think I think the the American system, especially since, uh, well, actually, you know, frankly, since the beginning, uh, it's been based on importation 
of dissimilar peoples who basically don't really trust each other and effectively they they are so dissimilar that they can't really form a cohesive block of political power to oppose the ruling elite and the ruling elite continue the importation of these people because it keeps them in power effectively. Uh, you can look at slavery. You can look at the, the sort of massive waves of even European immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe. Uh, and you can look at the recent waves of immigration from Asia and from Latin America. It basically divides the country up to the point where people are not willing to go out and basically protest and, and stir things up because why should I? It's, I'm, I'm not going to do it for you know uh, Juan or Manuel down the street. I don't care. He's not going to do it for me. And so nobody is is able to form a big enough group to oppose the elite. I think that's how how it works. Which is why you've got to build your own life, though. And um, it's a yeah. great conversation. But we've uh, you guys sent me this thing that that absolutely triggered me to the moon, uh, and that was the the limits to growth and resources. Uh, little pamphlet that uh, I'm not sure it was a club of Rome it was in the 70s they they kind of got together and basically were like hey guys um, you know computers you know that's a big thing now uh, let's run some simulations and so the, they, they ran you know obviously whenever you do a simulation it's sort of axiomatic you're putting in assumptions uh, and you're building a model and some models are not in reality but they're sort of uh, proxies for them and the models basically showed that the uh, the world would run out of resources. It's kind of Malthusian in that sense. Um, and it, it was proven wrong because, you know, technology improves and things like that. But the basic premise is that, look, uh, there's finite resources, guys, and we're going to run out of stuff. I mean, you can already see the shortages of water in the southwest of the United States. Uh, oil is a finite resource, uh, and it will get more and more scarce, which will raise the price. And so the more people you dump into the system, the more difficult it is for the individual to get by, unless you're sort of one of the uber rich who's making money off the whole thing. And so for the average person, it's it's a, a problem when you have rising populations. That's the basic bottom line of the whole thing. Yeah, well, the... Uh, the so how... Go on. <clears throat> oh, well, so, so how long until we see... You know, Amazon uh, PMDs guarding, you know, espresso machine deliveries to the elite from gorillas. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, that that's next year. Oh no, wait, it's October. That's coming this October. They have drone I mean, deliveries. This, this and something in Dark's. I mean, I, I am joking, but at the same time, it seems like something in Dark's wheelhouse, which is the more they take over, you know, logistics. Which is not my. I, this is, I defer to you, Dark. But it seems to me that uh, as Zog becomes as the formal Zog system, the state system becomes less able to deliver on its threats. It may have to start outsourcing to well, uh, people like this. Now they're having yeah. to do it now. The, Amazon I mean, does the army logistics. Amazon yeah. won the army logistics contract. Yeah, I mean, like the, the PMCs are taking over in Iraq. The the, the I mean, the war in Afghanistan is going to get outsourced to Eric Prince. You know, you, you know, you know, he set up shop in Hong Kong, and his new boss is the Chinese government. I mean, how, how do you like that? You know, talk about oh, rootless wow. patriotic American. Exactly. Yeah, patriotic American. He's such a piece of shit. <laughs> and he's 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 this Department of Education secretary's big brother, Betsy DeVos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's that's his that's or that's that's his sister. So. Whatever the club is, you ain't in it. And um, th this limits to growth paper was really fascinating because 
uh, you know, the libertarians will all be like, well, Paul Ehrlich, you know, and Julian Simon, Julian yeah. Simon, being able to, uh, you know, markets win BTF. Do you know how deep they're having to go in South Africa right now to get gold out of the ground? It's like three miles. I mean, don't don't these guys have to wear kind of like spacesuits at that point because of the, the the proximity at that point to the mantle? It's so hot, you know. Uh, it, it does get warm. I don't know if they have to wear special suits and stuff, but but they probably have ventilation. So, I was exaggerating, so but the point is, down. it's it's crazy. It's yeah. so far. It is so far down that the weight of the cable that would go all the way down there would snap under its own weight. We're talking the most powerful, the most tensile strong steel cable people are capable of making it's so long that the cable the weight of the cable itself would snap the cable so they have to go down in multiple stages down there to get this gold out of the ground okay and whether whether you're talking about rare earth minerals for cell phones or oil or what have you this stuff is is limited and it's not like um yeah, but but our political class is just so worried about freaking trannies. And if there were well, not black, I don't think they actually gives, are. It's a distraction. Yeah, they're not. It, it's a yeah, it, it gives it, it gives the game away. It's like you know they're worried about polar bear farts going to kill us all with the ice caps and all that. But you know, as long as they leave the borders open, it, it gives the game away. Every single environmental problem is exacerbated by. Uh, population growth and all population growth in the West is caused by immigration. You know, so we know that they're destroying the earth. They don't, they don't care, you know, but they'll, they'll tell us about the earth being destroyed so that they can get carbon taxes or whatever, so that they can get their fingers in more pies. But it's, it's, it's just. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, it's, it's not honest. This is a serious and honest political system. You know, and I'm a reactionary. I'm not against someone saying, I'm Jeff Bezos. I have an IQ of a gazillion and, and tons of money. I am better than you. Well, um, if we're going to live, like if I'm going to live in the grand duchy of Amazon.com or in the Baron of Excel is going to be the one that I owe my taxes to and I have to knuckle to him every time he passes me in the street, fine. That's not my problem. My problem is, is that under the old you know, feudal system, mm-hmm. there was a two-way obligation. No bless oblige. Right. And so right now, in we theory, have although I wonder if that was even true. I mean, I'm kind of cynical, <laughs> frankly, on this even being possible. But, you know, the idea was there. But at, at least, least theoretically, there was. Right. Yeah. But, but our system pretend is like pretends, right? On the one hand, that me and the crackhead down the street are the same. And that his vote should count. Just yeah, that, that's what's the most insulting about it. I mean, if it was just like more and, honest, it's like, hey, look, guys, and you know, we're, we're just smarter than you. Sorry, but that you know, that yeah. that I have the same amount of influence as Jeff Bezos, and that you know, like I can I can win the argument with Jeff Bezos, and I, you know, and and we'll we'll compete in the in the arena of ideas, and my ideas will uh <laughs> will will through through the force of facts and logic, I'll own Jeff Bezos with facts and logic, and then he'll all of a sudden drop all that self-interest that's made him 11 billion dollars last year <laughs> and, and he'll just come around to race realism and uh, and uh and uh being wise to the jq no that's never gonna happen and so whether or not you know that the this resource thing is uh is you know an imminent problem or just you know a near term or or a long-term problem serious countries serious people 
do things to mitigate that. They deal with it. And whether it's economic or political or uh, resources or something, well, the, the U.S. is crashing. The U.S. Well, is well, going to crash. Well, well, children... Yeah, it will dark. You know, the, the Alaskan pipeline was done right after the 73 OPEC, you know, uh, embargo. And, uh, you know, we, guess what happened? You know, M. King Hubbard was a technocrat in the 1930s when everyone was a communist or a technocrat. And he did a survey of North America for the, you know, technocracy. It was, it was Shell. I think in the 50s he did that paper, the uh, peak oil. But go ahead, please. Yeah. Yeah. He basically, uh, you know, he predicted peak oil for the lower 48 in 1970, something like that. Yeah, thereabouts. And, yeah. And it, and it happened. And it happened. And then uh, they, they created the uh, – then OPEC uh, was created, and you had the uh, embargo in 73. And then you have the uh, pipeline in Alaska. And so all this was done. They didn't explain it to us, did they? They didn't say M. King Hubbard was right and, oh, the Arabs knew they were going to be screwed over and they were going to peak, so they formed OPEC. Or uh, we, we created the pipeline to buy us more time in Alaska. They never told us that, but they knew it. And the same thing is going on now. You know, we're fighting over Central Asia and Africa resources there. And they didn't tell us. Heck, they want a pipeline, you know, to get natural gas to Europe so that Putin doesn't control them during the winter. And that pipeline would have to go through Syria. You know, they don't tell us these things, but they know them. And so that we are managed. We are managed like peasants or children. We are just managed by the elites. And all the important decisions about pipeline stand and uh you know peak oil and resources you know they're they're looking at them and they're making sure that they're taken care of you know let, let me tell you about garrett harden real quick he wrote the famous uh, tragedy of the commons essay you know he got the he got the verse from but when did uh, that come out that's super famous six, but I, uh, 1968 that, that recent wow go ahead please yeah yeah and he got the uh the the title from 19th century poetry but uh you know it was never very popular he made it popular yeah because the you know, commons was an older term it was sort of an agrarian society that had that so that that's why it surprises maybe yeah it's a good it's a good title yeah yeah and he he sat down and it was a basically an argument over finite resources and the game of the commons you know the commons you know the town green if the shepherd comes in to vote he he tends to leave his sheep on the town green a little bit longer you know so that they eat up all the grass and he can you know leisurely drink his beer and then he takes his sheep and leaves well the next shepherd who comes in all the grass is eaten up so all commons have to be stinted and managed and they were by our ancestors you know, the people that had commons, you know, the Hayward, you know, made sure that, you know, cattle stayed out of your, you know, your field. And, you know, the Woodward made sure that the, the woods, the coppiced and pollard trees were protected, et cetera, et cetera. It was all done through juries and wardens in the Middle Ages. And there are a lot of people named after those wards, those Middle Age wards. And that's how the Anglo-Saxon, you know, uh, village, you know, parish village was was administered. And that's what Jefferson wanted. You know, which is why all the uh, all the land west in, west of the Appalachian Mountains to the Mississippi River, it was surveyed in six mile by six mile townships called survey townships. You know, because he was trying to encourage the you know these six by six mile townships so that we he could have his ward republics or whatever. Anyway, Garrett Hardin is an ecologist. He's not an economist. 
And he was trying to make an argument that, you know, population is going to you know, exacerbate all our problems. We're going to run out of things. You know, and Paul Ehrlich and, you know, they made so the Soylent Green movie with Charlton Heston. You know, people believe that, you know, Paul Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb. And it turns out there was a green miracle. There was turning petroleum, you know, into agricultural products, saved millions of people from starving in the 1970s. That's what happened. It's not that, oh, all those people were wrong. You know, Garrett Hardin, all the neo-Malthusians, they were wrong. It's that they didn't understand markets because they're ecologists and not economists. You know, so they, they couldn't see that coming. But if, and uh, Julian and Paul Ehrlich, you know, famously had a wager over five commodities. Like, you know, uh, Julian Simon is a cornucopian. You know, he's an economist, so he thinks all you need is an entrepreneur and, you know, you can live off of unicorn farts, you know. And, uh, but, but uh, Paul Ehrlich's the ecologist, the Neo-Malthusian, so they had a wager. And, uh, you know, Simon let him pick five commodities. And uh, you, you say that they're going to go up, you know, Ehrlich. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be very scarce in the 1980s. So they had this wager and Ehrlich lost. The cornucopian won. But it, if they had the wager again in the 1990s, Ehrlich would have won half of it. You know, but so you know, or, or the two thousands. I mean, that that was when China and India were kind of coming online. Uh, you know, ten percent a year growth rates in China, for example, which is incredible. And the amount of steel they were they were they were producing, hoovering like, uh, it up. I mean, they, yeah, they were actually buying it from the United States, believe it or not, in the early two thousands. Um, so, so uh, now they produce yeah, the, half the world's steel. Uh, half. Yeah, yeah, and that that's language. You know, they, they are hedging their Federal Reserve notes. They have to have Federal Reserve notes to buy petroleum from OPEC. We can print, you know, Federal Reserve notes and steal the value of their their cash stores, which they got for making all that crap at Walmart. So they they use mm -hmm. they buy real commodities that we can't manufacture out of thin well, they, all, they also buy our real estate i mean that, that's another factor that uh well, they, the, taken over the, the free traders America, like uh, if they own real estate is that huge. it flows into the coast because that's the most expensive uh perceived as the most valuable real estate in the united states and so uh the, the chinese uh are buying up san francisco los angeles vancouver and canada uh, and that is benefiting yeah, the, the asset owners. Um, are they in Portland now? I didn't know that, but uh, oh, yeah. Seattle well, definitely. Yeah. But and go on, dark. This is this is again one of those. I think you guys have talked about where I know that I've heard this elsewhere, and I've certainly myself. I can't go to Shenzhen and buy places in China. Like, I can't buy. I can't buy land there. I can't own land in China. I don't know like, if you want China. to. It's so polluted, but go ahead. Well, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Like, of course, be like, of course. Off, you're not Chinese. And, yeah, and, you have no escape. Right. And that's so, that's and, basically what you're saying. You know, Europeans have, de have depended upon escape. That, that was the great economic miracle of Europe, right? Was that you could escape your overlord if he taxed you too much. You could go over to the next uh, duchy and they speak the same language and worship the same Jesus. And uh, well, that was a other, way to, to avoid rent-seeking. miracle was the Black Plague, especially in England. The Black mm -hmm. Plague allowed the Englishman to be born, ironically. We did an, we did an episode on this um, back when Alex Nicholson was still Fair, alive. Farewell to Alms was the book, I believe. Yes, yes, by uh, Gregory Clark. Great um, book. I mean, like, great, yeah, but... great book, and Alex lays out a very convincing case in that episode, and I highly recommend you uh, 
you read, uh, you listen to it, or you read the book by uh, by Gregory. Okay. Well, I know the argument is what it, it raised wages, right? Not only did it did it raise wages, but it allowed a rural economy to grow, and it allowed several regions of England that had been permanently uh, impoverished since their inception. If you read like uh, Richard Heilbronner uh, in the World of Philosophers, he you know, he notes that uh, most of England for the entirety of its history up until that point was regarded as probably the most dismal place in Europe, which is the most dismal country outside of the, the, you know, the two or three major cities you could find. And these rural areas that survived the black plague were able to not only, you know, raise their wages, but they were able, you know, they had an opportunity to build local supply chain infrastructure, to build up their farming stock and this is part of the reason why many of these you know, small villages became the epicenter of the English Industrial Revolution. I see, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, speaking of plagues, uh, don't we have, like, the perfect conditions for another plague? Oh. <laughs> yeah, because there anything... That, there was that, that Ebola outbreak in the Congo that I'm not entirely sure if they've... Can, can you imagine? So uh, Ebola gets endemic to the soil, and it needs certain conditions. Um. Now maybe they're maybe they're they're bad men in the dark, just killing Africans who are you know have are coughing or sweating or something. But I'm still too much of a libertarian to really trust the competence of the state. Sorry. Um. Can you they're imagine? <laughs> can you imagine like a like a Ebola outbreak or a, a Spanish flu type outbreak in Lagos or in Mumbai or in 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 densely packed Chinese cities. Well, and death is, is going to be what's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to be a giga death, and it's going to be in Texas immediately, twelve hours later. I mean, we couldn't keep Ebola out of this country. Th- could this we? is one of the reasons why I recommend to anybody, regardless of what you think the stock market or whatever is going to do. Uh, decentralization is it, it's almost like a if you can provide you know sufficient level of, of standard of living that you're comfortable with it is inarguably better than being part of this system that again we've demonstrated this with so many examples is not to your benefit it is to the benefit of the elite and so if you can get off that train do so and then immunize yourself against the effects that is going to infect the population if possible. And I think rural places are great places to set up and and raise families and things like that. It's always hard to figure out a way to earn a living, but uh, there are ways to do it. If you teach yourself how to farm, if you know, if you're handy mechanically, um, those are probably the easiest ways to start. So I think that's, that's an example. I mean, if you talk about a plague, I mean, for God's sakes, I mean, the cities are going to be the worst hit of all. Well, you want a place where your women and children are safe and the men folk can still work. You know, in, in my ideal colony, you know, the men folk, as long as everything's still working, they would be out there making money. But, you know, the statistics on fertility show that, you know, marriage status and marrying them young and w- women don't need to work. You know, the, the, uh, it's not good for the families. It's not good, uh, you know, having them, uh, you know, in the workplace uh, anyway. You know, the I, I, I can approach it for you, Haas. They they don't. They stop yeah. babysitting. Yeah, they yeah they don't even. When you look at women's real. in the when when you when you look at women's impact in the economy, I mean, I I have a crude joke that I tell, but it's 
it's true and that, that you know women swap uh, dishes diapers and male appendages that begins with a d and that's that's the that's the work women do and if they're not married or they're working outside the house or doing something like that for somebody else if they're married and staying home they're at least doing it for a husband and basically that's i mean that's what you know what they do there's nothing wrong with that and i'm not like you know well well, it's sterilizing us having them be equal It, it you know no, no, it's sterilizing us. We are, we are going to be replaced. You know, I, I hear white people talk about, oh, it's good that I don't have any grandchildren because the world's overpopulated anyway. What are you talking about? You know, 80 million Latinos just walked across the border as you said that, you know? It, well, yeah, I don't you know, get it why they don't understand the fact that, you know, yeah, okay, if everybody's sort of, again, it's like if we all agree and altruistically cooperate – uh, it probably would be okay if we all somehow you know could control the growth of the population, but there are certain groups that are not doing that. I mean, Steve Saylor's most important chart in the world, projecting four billion Africans in 2100. Um, there are 500 million people in Europe. There are probably that you know at most in the European diaspora. Um, Africans are going to be the most common people on earth, uh, which probably is not going to happen because there's going to probably going to be a limit to how, how much the system can continue. But, you know, ask these people like, okay, you're going to reduce, you know, your, your offspring. Well, those other people aren't. And so the world is going to be dominated by people who didn't even have written language, uh, and the wheel, uh, not too long ago. Um, do you think that's going to be an improvement? Wouldn't you rather have your kids, you know, taking well, up that the, space? Yeah, in the 1970s, Garrett Hardin got uh, was part of the zero population growth movement. And he stopped and he said, all I'm doing is preaching to women that weren't going to have children anyway. You know, call it college students. You know, the if you want to uh, limit population on Earth, if you want to cut it down, you got to enforce those borders. And he wrote a paper about uh, lifeboat raiders. He's like, look, every single piece of land on Earth has a carrying capacity. And think of it as, think of every country as a lifeboat, and your carrying capacity are your provisions, you know, uh, you know, on the sea, you know, that you got to live off of. Are you going to let other people raid your lifeboat? And people have all sorts of crazy, I mean, absolute lunatic asylum ideas about population. You know, they think that they're going to go off on a spaceship and that's going to relieve our excess population in the future. And it's easy to destroy that. You know, if the the spaceship is finite, right? So the kind of people that have to go on the spaceship are going to have to learn how to control their fecundity, their fertility, right? And that's just going to leave the people that can't on Earth, which has the population problem to begin with. And so, you know, and there is no difference between the Earth and a spaceship when it comes to this. The earth is the spaceship that God gave you. So live off the resources that he gave you. You're going to have to, whether on the spaceship or on earth, learn to control yourself. And, you know, letting uh, people raid our lifeboats just means that they're going to eat up our provisions and have more children. And then people love to, to complain about the West. They said it would require four earths for everyone to live like Americans do. Well, then why on earth are you trying to bring everyone to America, dummy? You know, these people are liars. Are they are people, just straight up lying li- 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 to your face. I think Darwin is is scheduling these people also for extinction because if, if you look at, 
what happened to the Neanderthals in Europe, um, there there are sort of uh, estimates that their their intelligence actually was higher than Homo sapiens. Uh, I mean, if you just at least look at their their skull sizes, their brain cavities in particular, uh, and the, the difference was Homo sapiens was more violent. They killed them. All right, that's what's happening. You know, white people are, have you know one of the most you know intermixed you know percentages of Neanderthal DNA of, out of any other group in the world. Uh, Asians have some of it, uh, but you know we're we're basically more trusting than other people, and so we're getting wiped out. I mean, this is not going to end well. Yeah, I don't think it'll end well either. But you can do the things that build up a community, and I mean, say about some Dunbar's it, number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and. Uh, and frankly, I don't think you have the West without us. You can't have the West without Western people. So whatever's going to be in post-America or post-Europe, it's not going to be America or Europe. You know, it's not going to have our living standards. You know, demographically, you know, people like to talk about, you know, oh, well, actually, you know, Latinos aren't that criminal, you know, compared to you know, other populations. Compared to blacks. Like, I mean, you know, that's like saying like, well, you know, this, uh, this turpentine, you know, is really bad for me, but so I'll just swallow gasoline. I mean, it's a stupid yeah, Right. Look at the gang violence, though. They are number one of any ethnicity when it comes to forming gangs. So the future is, you know, El Norte with roving gangs of Latinos. Are you going to put your kid on a school bus with those Latino gangs? There's I mean, not, you know, it, no. It, it, look at the Los Angeles Unified School District. I mean, it's already completely ruined. I mean, it, it's, I don't know. But we're, we're preaching to the choir, I mean, for the most part. I know we're maybe, preaching to the choir. Then yeah. look what the dummies do. They move to Colorado, and they legalize pot, and then they get rid of uh, guns. Yeah. And then the yeah. Latino invasion comes up that i can't yeah, remember comes to colorado they're in chicago for god's sakes i mean the cartels have used chicago okay you talk about Atslan or whatever stupid name they want to give to this fake country that never existed they were never in illinois for fuck's sake i mean and <laughs> it's like you know people just they're, are not they're, smart. They're, they're everywhere and and this is of course because they're the hell the preferred helotry class of you know like if if blacks weren't so dumb and so criminal and so violent right then but they tried that helot class, and they're like, "Man, these guys are impossible. We got to get ourselves some new helots." And you know, if Latinos were so peaceful, why are Guatemala and Honduras and you know other Central American countries among the most violent places in the world? Why is this not? Yeah, yeah. Why is it not? No. What kind of methamphetamines out on the street in your town? It's glass. It's not shake and bake. It's laboratory grade methamphetamine smuggled by the cartels across the border. Well, right? I don't know anything. About it, you know? No, I'm I'm telling you, it is. You know, you don't see it, shake and bake. That's so 1990s. It's all laboratory grade. You know, and fentanyl. You know, they're smuggling across. You know, oh, uh, they busted enough fentanyl to you know kill the entire state of Massachusetts. You know, that that happens. Uh, you know, every few weeks now. And so yeah. th that's the future. And and then your people are dying of uh, was it white mortality went up for the first time like a couple years ago. And it was like a lot of liver diseases from our lifetimes of substance abuse, a lot of suicide, well, you know. Right. Well, and, and why do those people commit suicide, right? They have no, they have no purpose and they have no community. They have no colony. And so whichever way, uh, Rufus and I did a show some time ago, uh, about a year ago. I think, Co colonies. About I highly recommend it. I've recommended this to multiple people. Um, but, this is but partly the inspiration for the show. Solving for a pattern, right? You know, like, like, uh, Wendell Berry um, is is uh, 
what you want to do, right? You want to you want to kill two birds with one stone, three birds with one stone, four birds with one stone. You can right? So so you talk about lonely old people, right? They just rock themselves once they retire. Well, if you had a community where there was an old folks apartment and that old man who was still spry enough to uh, um, operate a rifle and had been in the army back in, in the in 1970s and had done his service in Vietnam, maybe he could sit at the gatehouse. Maybe he could teach the young, young boys to shoot while the dads were away. Maybe um, he could he could be the guy that um, that watches the kids, and Mama and Daddy can uh, can make him some more grandkids because they're not harried as all get out from from working, uh, you know, two jobs and driving two hours each way, both of them. And, and maybe he could have four or five, six grandchildren to play with, and uh, and actually, and you know, do the thing that grandfathers used to do, which is teach your grandsons how to fish. I don't and know. maybe he could contribute what little wealth he does have left to the school instead of the reverse mortgage. So, yeah, that might that might actually, and then and then that family might uh, might be able to do some things. And so, uh, you know, uh, collectively, you yeah, dark collectively, we could do all sorts of things. We could solve all our problems. The trouble is that libertine individualism. You know, you go to the suburbs, you know, if they're well-to-do suburbs, everyone's got a swimming pool in the back. And you're like, why didn't you guys all just pay to get one nice swimming pool for the whole neighborhood? Yeah, there, you can't get out. That's there's some I'm there's some real examples I wanted to bring up um, that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they would uh, be our people per se, but the models at least, you know, you could sort of understand how they work and, and adopt them. Um, believe it or not, there's actually uh, a lot of these in so somewhat urban or suburban communities where people are doing what you're talking about. Uh, there are places uh, in Ohio. Um, I don't have the name in front of me, but um, if you if you look up, you know, Ohio kind of like community uh, gardens and things like that, or they'll have courtyards where you know they they have kind of these ideas where there's going to be like a, a weekly meal where everybody comes together you know on the weekend or something like that uh and they have shared facilities uh they'll have like a house uh that you know you, everybody doesn't need you know their own washing machine for god's sakes i mean that that makes you know that's like a no brainer um if you live in an apartment building that that is obvious and so like suddenly you move to the suburbs and you have your own machine i mean why do you need that if you have basically a place that you can go in the middle of all the houses that has that machine that doesn't need to be operating 24 seven if it's in your house. But if 10 houses use it, I mean, you could probably get a pretty good usage out of that equipment. And, yeah, and you can get industrial grade equipment. Right. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. And so these used, actually have you ever used a commercial dishwasher, man. It does yeah. a load of dishes in like 15 seconds. It's awesome. Right. And you and, can use and, phosphates, you know, that they took out of all our detergents. So you know, for industrials. So well, okay. So here's here's an idea that I've I've kicked around with people, but here's here's an idea. All right, your local pool party, local uh, local IE chapter, local whatever dissident group. First of all, you don't advertise. You do not advertise as local neo-Nazi compound group. Great way to get away. <laughs> okay, you don't do that. But what you do do is you set up. 
uh, a corporation that you have to buy into and be part of. And you set up uh, some tiny houses for the single fellas um, that are like, you know, a bedroom and uh, his own internet. It'll maybe make some coffee or something. And maybe, you know, a, a little, little, like maybe a little rent, couple ranch houses for maybe a library maybe, of Japanese cartoons. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you'll you obviously have a community server with the, with the, uh, already preloaded all, all the Japanese cartoons you might want. But, um, but you can have things like, uh, you know, a common building you know, that you put up that's a steel building that you can have like a kitchen with, you know, the commercial and, the, and, the, and a couple commercial laundry facilities, you know, like a couple washers, a couple dryers. Um, you can have things like a library uh, where everybody, you know, just, you know, there's 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 books. And I, I know that you guys go through a ridiculous amount of books. I go through Mickey Mouse books. Oh, really could nice you imagine to to... if we combined all our books, fam? The five of yeah. us in this call? What kind be... of library that would be? It'd be pretty good. Yeah, I think be it'd be a good, good library. Yeah. And and so, again, we're not rich like we think we are. or Our society certainly isn't rich. Or if it is rich, it's, it's rich for certain people and certainly not for the average Joe. So stop having solidarity with people who don't have solidarity with you. Find people that are going to going to have your back, or move to places where people and do things like recollectivize stuff that you can, and and have meals and have friends and do things for each other. Like you know, let's say uh, that Nick and Rufus were neighbors, and Nick really wanted to take his wife out, and he couldn't find a babysitter. And, you know, what you normally would do is just be like, oh, gosh, now we can't really go out. And darn it. Well, no. You just say, hey, Rufus, I'm taking the missus out for a date, and the kids are playing such and such. Would you mind looking in on them? And, and then you leave. Because normal communities, you do that. Normal communities. And, of course, that's all been taken from us by diversity and lots of other things. And anybody who's been listening to me, a rant and rave for the last few years knows all about how all that worked, but recapture that stuff. I, I found the, the name of uh, one of these uh, in the Midwest that I, I thought made a lot of sense. Uh, it's called Sunward Co-Housing. It's in Michigan, uh, and they do this kind of shared uh, courtyards, uh, shared meals on occasion, and they have a common house. They're on 20 acres, and they do emphasize uh, families. And so this is uh, something that I think we all should strive for if we don't have them currently, uh, which I think is, is something that begs the question, how do you do that if you're all kind of living in a kind of a dormitory when you want to have a family? It's a little bit harder, but I think if you uh, just scale it up a little bit, you can have you know your own residence, but you, you don't need all these stupid laundry rooms you know floating around. I mean, you can, you can centralize a lot of it, and it brings people together, which is a good thing. Yeah, you can watch that. Uh, they got um, a documentaries of Hutterite colonies up in Canada. You know where the presenter is trying to get the the kids to run away, trying to help them run away. But you look at it, see how they live, and it's uh, the the kitchen is all industrial equipment, and uh, all the women get together and they they use the soap that they make to clean everything, and then, so they clean all the surfaces, sweep them, and then they they make a big meal, buy in bulk and make and make food in bulk. Uh, you know, so everyone could have a collective meal. 
and uh, it's and then they have pie, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's 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 a nice way to live, and um, they can do they can do amazing things collectively. And if you and if you can get over your American individualism, like race uh, concepts, you know that you got. Well, then uh, you can see. You know, the, the first step is probably to to get uh, turn your cyber network into an in real life network. You know, start having uh, gatherings. If you already have gatherings with like minded people, that's good. Now you need to incorporate and you need to start planning. You know, and it, and because uh, you want to learn how to deal with each other and deal with money before you all live together in a community, you know, do it where you're at. You know, treat it like a Masonic lodge. You know, you you have weekly or monthly meetings, and you're you're holding money in common to help each other. If you get doxxed or unemployed or whatever, you're you're getting used to each other. And then the, the colony should start with a single house, a big old house, and you start with co-housing. You know, because that will be the first house in your community. And uh, you can buy that. You can't buy the whole community, but you can buy that house. And you start with co-housing and work your way up. So there's a natural gradation of steps. You don't go straight to colony. You got to have the network first. You know, community is people, and that always comes first. You got to have a community of people that have the same values you do. And uh, people that you wouldn't mind if your kids ended up marrying their kids. And uh, then you have a tribe. So, you know, thanks for letting me rant about it. But I think that's the natural order, the progression, if you want to build colonies. I, I agree uh, with you guys. I'm a big believer in mutual aid and some kind of volkish voluntary socialism as the, the way forward on the small scale. But I have to say it's a tragedy that we're even in this situation. And the reason we're in this situation is we lost control of the state. And I think that yeah, I <laughs> all the ways to secure living space and resources for your none is more effective than an actual state. And well, the, while, the, agreed. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I'll let you finish. I'm sorry to butt in. Well, I would just say that yeah, we have to play with the hand that we're dealt now. We right the situation right. we actually live it's in. Like, how do we get? But yeah. the long the it can't just be trying to survive this way. The 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 long term has to be the foundations for us for a state. Yeah, well, the, that can... there's there's two answers to that. First of all, you don't just do the outside strategy, which is essentially what you're doing. You do the outside inside strategy. You need to have people inside the system uh, that believe in you, that support you, that can at least muck it up and slow it down, so you can build your colonies in case it's the worst case scenario. But you know, the second thing is that this is a state. You see, you know, every statist believes in anarchy between states, right? You know, the uh, across international boundaries, you can send armies, you can send spies, you can steal from them, you know, assassinate, you know. So we believe in anarchy between states. Well, if the whole world's going to come here, we need a state, a real one, and not just, you know, make believe on the TV. So these colonies are our states, and what's beyond the wall will be foreign territory. Right. If things get that bad, but honestly, you know, I, hope- I would compare it to what the Jews do. They basically they occupy our. Well, it's not ours. It's it's a piece of land. Well, the Jews are a state within a state. Sure, yeah. nature. But they have yeah, they, they are, have a they system a that, that's working. And effectively, since we're in such a minority, which is pathetic, given the percentage of you know ostensibly white people, but the percentage of white people that sort of get the fact that we're being killed 
killed off very slowly, very cleverly, uh, is not that big. And I would compare it to basically the Jews that were smart enough to realize what was happening to them throughout history. Uh, and they figured out that, look, you don't go out there shouting into the frigging, you know, police, you know, when, you know, they're coming for you. No, you do it in covert. You do it carefully and you do it together. But you also operate not exclusive. You you operate to the best that you can to get resources for your group. And they do it within large, you know, sections of territory uh, by networking together over vast territories and not isolating themselves. Um, and and, take, and, yeah, and just say ahead. you're religious. Just say you're religious, not a racial group. Oh, yeah, right. we're just that, a religious that, group. That's very, very true, Mazzonius. <clears throat> I would say, though, Adam, this, this could be a show in of itself. But it's important to remember with the Jews that we are the host to their parasitism. That's right. I, I agree with you. I, I know. So he, <laughs> I know. You can't imitate. No, no one here disagrees with you about the nature of the... <laughs> Of like, sure, yeah. no, I'm I know not this. saying it's I, good I, I, or I, I, right I, I, or anything like that. It's just it is what it well, is. Well, my point is, there's a limit to how much you could say we need to imitate people like this. Well, we can't we can't because... parasitize. But what what they do that I think is an effective, long term, sustainable model is they they network and they work together to help themselves. Now they do it at the expense of other people, unfortunately. But you know, we we this point yeah, they're, I, they're, I, the, the hostism. That the host is rapidly becoming non-white, by the way. So you know, think about it that way. I mean, the United <laughs> yeah. States is not exactly white, and whatever we can get from it may be to our advantage. You know, ultimately, if we think that way. Yeah, their parasitism make, gives them an incomplete identity, which uh, you know, it wasn't until they had Israel that they started being what farmers and soldiers again. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. so the, yeah. the, the, you know, you want. That's why I think it's, you know, the best model is to think of it as a nation in miniature. You want a complete nation. You want guys, uh, you know, to be soldiers and farmers, you know, while you still have most of the men going out and earning those greenbacks, just like, you know, the Amish do in order to pay those property taxes and everything. Well, so regardless, right? Like, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, but the utter failure of the promise of the Trump administration and just complete capitulation of the GOPE to, to the donor class, as exemplified by CPAC this week, um, uh, has shown me more than ever before that, like, you got to plan for what's next. Now, I have children, and whatever is coming next for my children is not going to be the United States of America with picket fences. And and that in a nice house in the burbs and that kind of thing. it might be might you know I hope it's some kind of like Cascadian, um you know state and miniature that has all the resources we need and and is able to you know hold off the Chinese, but uh, it's not going to be the United States. I don't know which way that particular frog is going to jump. I'm just saying for all of our people, understand. That whether it's oil shortages, whether it's lithium ion shortages or other rare earth minerals or whatever, build yourself a lifeboat in a colony, and then you have a lifeboat. It doesn't matter what you know, whether it's plagues or wars or famines or what have you, build yourself a lifeboat, and then it's not a problem. There's a guy who's done a lot of good work. Um, I don't particularly like his. Uh, politics because he's still very like libertarian jack spierko uh the survival yep, yep. and, and uh I, I think his politics are 
dumb, actually. <laughs> I stopped listening to him for many years. But again, you can still learn. I mean, a technology is a technology, but, and basically that's what we're trying to get at. It's like, if right, there's right, something well, that works, has, adopt it. He has a tagline that I think is very important. This is, this is something that you have to be careful of when you get into prepping. Is like, does this prep? You know, is buying 75 cases of MREs make my life better, or is it a gigantic pain in the ass? Yeah, they're just to make Well, it's sort of like Robert Kiyosaki's what is the definition of an asset? An asset is something right. that puts money in your pocket. Right. Bottom and so, Jericho says, you know, like, prep should make your life better no matter what. And building that lifeboat would make your life better no matter what. It would be really nice, like, live with you five guys as my neighbors. That'd be freaking fantastic. But, yeah, you'd be living in the land of the living. Yeah. For a change. Yeah. Right? And, you would be honest. You would be able to be honest and have a great time. Sure. And that's yeah. that's that's what the whole thing about your role in real life activism was like. You could finally talk to people who understood what the problems were. And, and so, I mean, we, we've gone on for quite a while, and I, I hope that this has been salutary for the listeners. But understand, the system is not going to be salvageable. It is not something that can be um, uh, steered or bought or moved in any appreciable way, um, you know. So, start building your own alternatives. I am a man with a heavy heart, and I dare not turn the pages, fighting with automatic self-destruction. It's a blind faith, a cruel waste, one bitter taste. So I know I need this sweet sensation.
know I need 